This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everyone. This is the Matt Townsend Show. And uh, this is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's still out sick. We wish him well and a speedy recovery. And, uh, yeah, we didn't even get to celebrate his birthday on the show. His birthday was on Monday, but it's not too late to hop onto Twitter and send him some some nice tweets. I'm sure he's just laying at home watching, catching up on Netflix. But uh, we do wish him well. We've got a fun show for you today. We're going to be speaking uh, with a guest who's talking to us about defunding the arts. I don't think he's advocating the defunding of arts, but he's going to be educating us more on this topic and uh, kind of the history of conservatives and, and uh, Democrats and their stance on on the arts. So, you know, we could be seeing a pink slip being handed to Elmo and Big Bird and all those lovable characters that we've grown up with and, and have come to love. Today is also Stay Up All Night Day. Will either of you be celebrating this important day? No. Must sleep. 8 o'clock? What do you mean 8 o'clock? Like you'll go to sleep at 8 o'clock? No, I go to bed at 10. That's a good solid hour. I have no idea what that sentence just meant. Yeah. Cole, how about you? Well, you tell me, am I going to be here at 7 o'clock tomorrow morning? Because if so, probably not. Except that last night, here on BYU Radio, there was a baseball game that happened to go about five hours. Um, Ooh. So I left here about seven hours ago. What? And now I'm back. So we don't have baseball again tonight. So, so, that, then, you should not be, so then you be should celebrating. be here tomorrow. I should be here tomorrow. Okay, good. So you had something you needed to do, sleep. Mm-hmm. You needed to leave, but you were running a baseball game. Correct. When I did that, every time I had something to do, the baseball game went long. I don't know what it was. Every time I needed to go on a date, <laughs> I needed to go eat dinner, I needed to do anything, the baseball game went into extra innings. Baseball is the most evil of all sports. Yeah, it was 13 innings last night, and then anytime I just have the night to to be here, you know, I, I plan out my night perfectly. Right. Two and a half hour game, like magic, yeah. just three up, three down. Well, I don't think we should continue to uh, cover this heresy that's happening right now. Uh, baseball is the greatest sport. They need a clock, and they need to say, here's 15 minutes. If you can't get it done, okay, we'll move on to the next inning. No stepping out I, of the box. Yeah. No pitchers meetings. I can understand some of those changes, maybe. But uh, shame no, on you, you both. No, you shame can't. on you both. He likes to sit there and just watch <laughs> something for hours on end. You would wear Dodger blue every day. Okay, but if you were listen to this. Up until the playoffs, I'll just watch the minute and a half recaps. So I'm not sitting down watching three and a half, four hours of baseball Five every hours. night. You're one of those fans. What's wrong with that? If you were a fan, you'll watch your team. But he's a Dodgers fan, so it's less than a minute and a half of highlights. Oh. All right, wow. enough of this. Uh, Terry, let's let's move on, and you give us the, the rest of the news that's going on around the rest of the country. What's up? A tunnel inside a decommissioned nuclear production site in Hartford, Washington, collapsed Tuesday. Employees were ordered to take cover for fears of the collapse may have released radioactive material, but a state official told the Associated Press that radiation had not been released 
and there were no injuries. The Department of Energy previously said the tunnels contained contaminated materials. A source told a local TV station that road work nearby might have caused the collapse. Hanford, uh, located along the Columbia River and 200 miles southeast of Seattle, is considered the most contaminated nuclear site in the United States. Really? It was built during the Manhattan Project, produced plutonium used in the atomic bombs dropped on Japan. The site was uh, mostly decommissioned after the Cold War and is the focus of a large environmental cleanup project. I think I heard last night it's costing about a billion a year to make sure it doesn't turn into a huge problem. Wait, where is this in relation to Seattle? 200 miles southeast. Uh-oh. I lived Seattle. in Seattle for about five years. The site has, what, 9,000 employees, and uh, yeah, none of them were harmed. But, yeah, there's just a hole in the ground <laughs> kind of adjacent to the storage facility. Yikes. And, yeah, this is a uh, – it was a problem yesterday. So people were concerned, but uh, they said nothing was released, and they're uh, fixing it, whatever that means. The U.S. Uh, District Court for the Southern District of Florida has confirmed to ABC News late last night that a temporary restraining order has been issued against – Spirit Airlines Pilots Union to stop the work slowdown that has resulted in hundreds of flights being canceled. Spirit Airlines customers were not happy when as many as nine flights were canceled Monday night at Fort Lauderdale uh, Hollywood International Airport in Florida. In fact, they were so unhappy police had to be called in. Video posted by onlookers and witnesses report details of a massively chaotic scene, complete with yelling, customers, and physical altercations. Uh, though the official word from the local county sheriff's office was simply that several people were, quote, upset. The sheriff's office was called in to make sure things didn't get unruly. Three people, however, were arrested. Charges were uh, for disorderly conduct. So they canceled the flights and, or no, they they scheduled the flights and then the pilots didn't show up. So then they had to cancel the flights. Hmm. And so now they're into this whole, like, labor union thing where, where you know, it's, we're not getting our way, so we're just not going to show up to work with the pilots. Judge says you have to go to work. So United Airlines has too many uh, too many people on their staff, yeah. and Spirit has nobody showing up. Not enough. Okay. So yeah, more more air, airline chaos. We'll have more coming up later in <laughs> I'm the day. Sure, I we have will. More stories. Kanye West. I know you're very interested in all Kanye West news. Uh, reportedly, holed up on the top of a mountain in Wyoming, working on his next album. Uh, TMZ claims in a report Tuesday that the rapper has gone out west, which I don't understand how he can go out west when he lives in California. Yeah, you, that's the west of the west. It's, that's east of the west, if he goes to Wyoming. Oh, he's, oh. He's no, already no, no. In, in the west. He is west, in yes. Kanye West. So he's going out west. If you're in New York and you go to Wyoming, that's out west, right? I mean, you're talking about, like, you know, geographic definitions here. And if he brought his child, he would be going with northwest. There that's you go. That's right. And then I think he's going to do a, a western movie, too. Possibly. So apparently he's on top of a mountain trying to be creative. He is apparently smack in the middle of the creative process, though his album appears to be in its very early stages. He was also reportedly out in Wyoming two weeks earlier, so he's been spotted in the area, maybe with a big fur coat. Can we do our next show from the mountains? We kind of do. Uh, no, well, I just mean like literally on top of the mountain. I, I think our creative juices would get flowing a little better if we were up there. There's snow on top of the mountains here still. So it's cold. Okay, you don't like the cold. I'm learning really. something new I about just you. Wear a jacket and hide. Okay. No word on whether West rumored wilderness retreat has anything to do with the recent deletion of his Twitter and Instagram accounts. Don't know if you knew that. Maybe he's up there mapping out his presidential campaign. He could be. He did say 2020. <laughs> he was keeping his eye on that. So, um, this is interesting. Carter Wilkinson prepped for his final exams, attending his prom. He's also uh, kept dreaming of one other thing: chicken nuggets. 
Ooh, as we all do at and times. The, and the retweets that would lead him to tray loads of them. The New York Times reported that the dream came true this week is the 16-year-old from Reno, Nevada, known as the Nugget Kid, broke Ellen DeGeneres' record of, uh, at last glance, just over 3.4 million retweets of a single tweet sent during the 2014 Oscars. Carter's record, which currently boasts about 13,000 more retweets than DeGeneres, has earned him a year's supply of Wendy's chicken nuggets, thanks to the friendly challenge he made with the fast food chain in early April. Technically, Wendy's had a much higher benchmark in response to Carter's original query, he wanted free nuggets for life, uh, which asked how many retweets he needed to to win. He wanted uh, nuggets for a year, 365 days worth of nuggets. And they said he needed 18 million retweets. So then... Then they just said, okay, now you need to be the most retweeted retweet of all time. And okay. And that's 3.4 million instead of 18 million. But people are like, wait a second. You guys <laughs> lied. You said 18 million. Yeah. So Wendy's decided to go ahead and uh, help give him his year's worth of nuggets. And uh, they made a donation to the Dave Thomas Foundation of $100,000 in his name. And all that good stuff. So he gets free nuggets for a year. So I wonder, does he just get the standard four for a dollar for life? Like, you only get four per day, buddy. No, it's just for for a year. So, yeah, yeah, four per day for a year. I don't know if it's just four. See, now, maybe I need to check out this Twitter thing, and maybe I can put, like, I need a babysitter every Friday night for the rest of my life, or for for a year at least. Well, like, on, put her on Twitter? Yeah. See if that works? Do yeah. You find yourself a quality human being to babysit get your children? Get some retweets. All right. <laughs> They want to screen that a little better. I don't know. I mean, there will be a screening process. Oh, okay. But, uh, well, you just kind of judge them at the door? No, no. It w- they can they can tell me about themselves in oh. 20 characters or less or right. whatever it is. Great. That'll, that'll, that'll totally weed out the questionable. So uh, I, I noticed you didn't mention something, and I'm wondering if you wanted to talk about it or not talk about it, but uh, – a certain someone who is no longer employed with the federal government. Sure. They fired the FBI director. <laughs> it's interesting because he is the same person that Demo- Democrats were not crazy about because he may or may not have swayed all the of election. the, the yeah. election. Now, the Democrats are saying now that, uh, well, this is wrong that he was fired. Well, if you read the letter the president put out it sounds like he's firing him for what he did to hillary clinton mm-hmm. where, which doesn't make sense no you'd think he'd, you he'd know, be, be rewarded okay with that. yeah he's like <laughs> yeah that's fine but but some i've read a lot of stuff this morning people are you know it's like this is you know covering up for russia or something and we yeah. don't know anything about that but it's interesting every time russia comes up trump starts tweeting more Things happen. There's always some sort of big announcement. It's like he gets nervous. So he has to do something to kind of change yeah. the story, move the narrative somewhere. And I don't know if it's, you know, you know, there's there's no – I mean no one knows if anything happened. But it just seems like every time you get close, someone, mm-hmm. someone's – he changed the, the header on his Twitter account to uh, – a quote from Comey, or I think was it Comey or Clapper, whoever. Someone said that he that Trump is not being investigated. Huh. So the 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 the, the you go to the Trump Twitter page and like the the first thing you see is this huge quote that he's innocent. Interesting. Why would you put that on the front page of the thing everyone knows they can go and find <laughs> out what you're thinking right now, right? 
So all wow. these reporters right now are on Twitter with a screen. They, they take a picture of what they're watching, and they have four screens up on all the morning shows that the president likes to watch. Right, so they can watch what the what each of them are covering, and then compare it with the tweets to see what Trump's watching on TV right. this morning. Wow! There's like I saw at least four or five reporters this morning that are doing that. Doesn't Trump realize you don't uh, bite the hand that feeds you? I don't know. Mm. Well, and then they said they weren't going to make any comment last night, and then they watched the, so, some of the news that was coming out, and then they rushed five, like three or four people out to all of a sudden make comment and talk to everybody. <laughs> It's just all this stuff's very react- reactionary, and it just kind of seems like there's people that are nervous. Well, we'll see what happens. We'll see who he chooses next. I don't know, and that's the hard part: is the uh, Congress isn't just going to just rubber stamp somebody. Sure, this person's going to run the FBI. They get, normally you get a ten year uh, term when you're in office and when you run the FBI. And uh, I think I was hearing this morning the only other person fired from the FBI was someone that uh, was had a corruption scandal, mm-hmm. and Bill Clinton asked for his resignation, and he refused. So Bill Clinton fired him. Right, right. But so this is the second. This I think mean, it's either the shortest or the second shortest term of office for an FBI director. Hmm. That's what's happening with James Comey this morning. And so, initially, he was in L.A. giving a speech. And he looked up and saw some TV screens in the back of the room. He was giving a speech, and he thought it was a practical joke. Really? He's like, I got fired? For what? <laughs> so would you, rather, uh, would you rather hand in your resignation, or would you rather be fired? Even though you know well, that by not offering up your resignation, you're going to be fired. Yeah. So Which one's words, better? The resignation is so that you don't have being fired in your history. Right. right? So, then so it's, why... it's just saving face. Either why way, wouldn't you take fired. that? Yeah, yeah. why if wouldn't you? were the FBI director, I think your resume is doing okay. Yeah. Well, no, <laughs> he wasn't consulted. Like, hey, we want a resume. We want you to resign. He was yeah. just fired. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm talking down, about this but, guy uh, in the, the, Clint, the Clinton administration. Well, yeah, in that one, the guy thought he was uh, in the right or something in the, in the hmm. scandal, but it was pretty bad. What, I, I have to go back and look again, but it was pretty bad what he did. Do you think Clinton was bluffing? I don't know. I'd have to read more into it. but I, I call I, your bluff. I think it was pretty bad what he did, but the guy felt he was on solid ground, and Clinton just said, no, I can't keep you here. Mm. This is bad. You're fired. <laughs> I'll have to look into it some more. But that, that just it just seems like there's reactionary things that happen. They happen su- – I mean, they said they've been trying for the last two weeks to figure out a way to fire the FBI director. That's kind of the, 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 the uh, attorney general <laughs> and the president and kind of talking about how are we going to do this? Yeah. Why are you trying to figure out how to fire somebody? What has he done that's the problem? And then yesterday there were some problems with some testimony he gave recently. and Yeah. But that wasn't even mentioned when they fired him. So I'm not sure. Well, more will come out today. It's just so interesting how Democrats saw him as the worst guy in the world. Oh, yeah. And now he's this martyr. Yeah. They're like, oh, you know. <laughs> people, there's uh, Jimmy Kimmel had T-shirts last night that says, Comey's my homie. <laughs> he wants to <laughs> – are out there, so it's good. Wow. It's, it's interesting. People, yeah, you're right. I mean, Democrats against him because of what he did with Hillary. Now they're like, right. wait a second, you can't fire him. Everyone respects him in D.C. <laughs> like, really? I don't know. Trump on Twitter was the first one to bring that up also yeah. because he tweeted, the Democrats have said some of the worst things about James Comey, including the fact that he should be fired, but now they play so sad, exclamation mark. Yeah. So, oh. It's all crazy. They play so sad? So sad. Well, it's not. Is that like a song or something? Sometimes you wonder is English his first language. <laughs> just, just a thought. Oh, that was a bigly thought. 
Anyway, interesting stuff. Hopefully they get somebody in there that that everybody can trust and that everybody likes. Well, we'll take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with uh, Aaron Knockle, who is going to be talking to us about the arts and why conservatives want the government to defund the arts. And is this a new topic or is this something that's been in the works for many, many years? We'll cover that topic when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away. And uh, I'm I'm lucky enough to be able to speak with Aaron D. Knockle, who uh, is an assistant professor of art education at the Penn State College of Arts and Architecture. And uh, he's here to talk to us more about the defunding of the arts. Aaron, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Morning, Jeff. You know, the first time I remember hearing about uh, defunding of of Sesame Street was during the 2012 election when Mitt Romney brought it up. But apparently this is something that has been talked about for many, many, many years. And I was hoping you could talk to us a little bit about the history of the relationship between the government and the arts. Well, that's a that's a long history. I'm not sure we have the time to cover it all. But uh, the United States has long been in the business of funding um, strategic initiatives in the arts, uh, going back uh, in the 20th century to funding initiatives that would counter fascist ideologies or to counter sort of communist art movements. And so we'd be sort of funding our own artistic initiatives uh, stateside. And that started really uh, to be substantial when Kennedy established the NEA in the 60s and really made a public commitment to the arts as an important part of our democratic voice and a part of our democratic community. Uh, that has progressed over the last, say, 50 years and has become really a complex um, sort of system of state agencies, of local agencies, and federal agencies that kind of work as, a, as an almost an ecosystem for arts entrepreneurship. Uh, the, the, the call for defunding really started in the Reagan years. So in the 80s, it became, um, uh, you know, an important political, conservative political movement to limit the size of the federal government. And that was applied to a number of different instances. But in particular, there was this call to defund uh, public funding for the arts. And, you know, Reagan was an actor himself. And so he was uh, in a bit of an awkward position, having um, a lot of associations with artists and arts organizations uh, but nonetheless, that, that call to defund um, public funding, especially federal funding for the arts, has really been on a loop uh, for the, the past 30 years. So we see it pop up in the late 80s, uh, in the mid-90s, in the culture wars. Uh, it, it has a bit of a heyday again in the early aughts. Uh, and particularly in 2011, there was a controversy at the National Gallery around a certain number of artworks. So it really has been um, something that's cropped up a lot over the last uh, 30 years or so. Yeah. So so tell us more about the reasoning behind this and why you believe that reasoning might be flawed. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, I think there's a number of ways that you can sort of um, approach the, the, the logic. I think, you know, what's happening now in, in the, the current political environment, I think, is that there's, a, there's sort of a blanket application of an ideology, a conservative ideology that suggests that the size of government should be limited. 
that there is a coercive power that the government has by taxation, and that 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 coercive power should not be applied to cultural activities. And I think that we could actually all agree that 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 sounds pretty good. Um, But the actual application of an ideology to governance cannot be a one-to-one relationship. So I think that that's where the problem comes in, is that you can't simply have a sort of an idea, a political idea, and allow that to guide all policy implementation. Because if we look at the NEA today, it really is a, a, a very complex system that allows funding to trickle down to all sorts of very rural and inner city, really you name it. Uh, NEA funding is, in, is represented in all 16,000 communities in every single congressional district. Uh, that's a pretty amazing distribution of funds. And you can see a, a really vast application of where these things are coming, uh, where these uh, funds are going to. Up to 75% of those funds go to very small or medium-sized organizations. A lot of times, um, you can look in your local community. I know here, and I live in State College, Pennsylvania, and um, we have a, a Center County um, uh, Council for the Arts that uh, takes advantage of NEA funding. They apply every year, and it helps to support our local arts community. But I, uh, you can look yourself. Uh, there's a there's a public uh, access search engine which allows you to see the grants that are distributed, and I bet you you can find uh, uh, the way that the NEA funds are working in your local community. So the idea of um, you know NEA being big government. I think is actually a fallacy, and that's something that drives a lot of these, a lot of the arguments to to defund. Um, another another sort of very common, I think, application is that that somehow um, the NEA is only funding elitist culture. Um, so um, Speaker Ryan has been um, sort of on a, um, a, a talking points tour recently, talking about the NEA and and making very um, very compelling stories about you know how can he ask constituents to pay for liberal elites you know sort of opera in New York City. Um, and while that makes a very compelling emotional story, I, the reality is is again that the vast majority of NEA funds are really going to local agencies. They're supporting artists in your neighborhood. They're supporting people you know, people that support the arts. And actually, one of the most exciting things, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so invested in, in, in understanding this issue and speaking out publicly, is that a, a vast majority of NEA uh, uh, grants go towards organizations that, are really have, that have a, a really robust educational mission. So it's things like youth orchestra, it's things like understanding how to, how to interface a cultural institution, uh, a dance troupe, say, that will go to a high school in a rural community. I mean, application after application, you see that there are really strategic initiatives that are involving education in the arts and supporting artists in, in, local, in, in, in local communities. Um, so this is a really important uh, aspect for people to understand when blanket statements about sort of elitism or centralized government are being applied to, to NEA funding. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what, what sort of misconceptions are there that, you know, about arts funding that, that feed these budget crises that we're having? Well, I think one of the things that that I that often um, gets highlighted, and again, because I think it it sort of probably serves a little bit better in media cycles, it can grab a little bit more attention. Are, are the ways that NEA funding and and federal funding in particular can be associated with controversial 
contemporary art. Um, I myself have some someone who enjoys contemporary art. I, I think it brings a, a sort of volatility and a, a provocative nature to our public discourse. I think it's an important part of a contemporary sort of democratic society. But it's not for everybody. Um, performance work and works in, in media really push boundaries. Uh, for someone who's in, in the arts, such as myself, uh, I think it's really uh, really a fascinating and important part of our, our cultural institutions and our, our civil society. Um, but it becomes really easy to take something like that out of context. And this is, this is what you see really commonly, like, say, since the culture wars in the 90s, where you take very, very controversial sort of performance work that is not well understood when taken out of context. So somebody like Andre Serrano or David Wojnarowicz, um, and their work can be, again, if you don't know anything about the work or the nature in which it was made or the conversations that they're tapping into, it can be really sort of politically volatile. Uh, and that's been, that's been leveraged often, I think, uh, in, in ways of making arguments against uh, federal funding is that it, it funds work which is inappropriate. Uh, my, I, my argument would be is that, um, you know, I think that these are actually really healthy conversations that we should be having as a democratic society. We should be engaging um, different ways of knowing and, and being a part of a social um, and a community um, and, and understanding where other people are coming from. So that building of empathy um, becomes difficult when it's, when it's targeting works that are not well understood. But I think the, um, you know, one, of the, one of the misconceptions of NEA funding is that it's really just funding this kind of contemporary work that, that is um, um, only supportive of, you know, again, uh, big city kinds of elitist culture. And that's just not true. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned a number of reasons why the conservative side is, you know, taking issue with the NEA. What what about some reasons why uh, maybe Democrats might take issue with the NEA? Yeah, absolutely. And and what I would say is I, I'm I try to be careful not to use uh, political parties because right, yeah. you know, really these are these are uh, about political ideologies. Uh, you know, and if we can think along, along a continuum. So if we think about more left or liberal kinds of um, associations with public funding, I mean the 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 critique that's leveraged is that attachments with federal funding always come with kind of overdirection. So there is always a kind of um, you know, a threat of control that comes with public funding. And, you know, again, when you apply a blanket ideology, I mean, it's the same thing. When you apply a sort of blanket ideology to anything, that argumentation becomes, uh, it sort of exacerbates, um, the, it polarizes the issue. What I would say is that while that may be true, in other words, that funding does come with attachments, those attachments are oftentimes associated with the need to serve underserved communities. Um, there's some stipulations in grant funding that, that really dictate that grant, grantees really think about how they're serving their communities, and they, they help to fun, uh, channel those funds to underserved communities as a part of their mission. Um, there's also some language that goes along the line of, you know, making sure that the um, NEA funds are being distributed to um, state organizations. So there's actually a law that dictates that 40% of NEA grant-making budget um, is awarded directly to the states. Um, so these are things that, you know, while I think we can say sort of blanketly that, yes, it comes with some amount of control, um, you know, the reality is, is that control is really leveraged by a, a, a far, just a, a really decentralized um, component of panelists, reviewers, and people who are involved in looking at the grants to assess their value. 
And so you have a number of and, – and so when we get down to the actual individual level, again, these are people who are, who are involved in the arts, who are, um, have professions in the arts, who are involved in local arts agencies, who are involved in state agencies, uh, people who have ex- expertise, people who have passion. Um, these are the kinds of people that we want to make decisions in terms of um, the distribution of these funds so that we do see an equitable distribution. So I think in some ways while you can look at um, – this notion of, of uh, the control or, or an exacting kind of um, not allowing for, for the full creative expression, while that does, I think, uh, that does happen, it happens because of initiatives like targeting funding. It happens because of values and, and position statements that the NEA clearly puts on their, um, in their initiatives and their grant applications. Has, has there ever been, you know, like a fully fledged, fleshed out national policy on culture? Uh, no, that, that's actually a really interesting, um, you know, an interesting way to think about this is that, that the United States has always had sort of a very ad hoc approach to cultural uh, policy. So in other words, that, that we kind of attend to um, initiatives, and this is largely, you know, driven, I think, by political cycles. And again, this is where that sort of conservative and, and liberal points come in, because you have you have um, sort of growth in cultural um, funding, and you also have sort of, you know, sort of a pullback. Um, in a lot of ways, our, our government, uh, in, in terms of thinking about entitlement programs, um, a lot of that is dictated by, by political cycles. But there really has no, never been a kind of co- a comprehensive um, um, a political or, or, sorry, a cultural policy for the United States, which is, which is um, a little unusual. Um, in Europe, there are really clear sort of... Um, Articulated policies that governments sort of use to operate and, and assess funding from uh, through their their annual or um, budgeting cycles, um, and so the, the the way that we do it does open it up to public debate, which I think is actually a good thing. Well, uh, let's take a break. Let's uh, continue the discussion when we come back. We're, we're speaking with Aaron Knockle, who's an assistant professor of art education at the Penn State College of Arts and Architecture. And uh, he's talking to us about the defunding of arts and maybe some of the consequences that would come because of that. And uh, we'll continue the discussion when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Aaron Knockle, who uh, is talking to us about the defunding of arts. And uh, Aaron, I was hoping that uh, we could talk a little bit more about the specifics behind uh, how this would affect, let's say, how this affects my children, how this affects my community. What are the specifics of how this would affect them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think we should probably um, acknowledge the fact that, that um, for this go-around, uh, when, I, when I had really sort of entered the, the discussion publicly about NEA funding, um, you know, it was really because of the initial uh, budget blueprint that was issued by the, the Trump administration and the staff. Um, that is really just an initial step um, and becomes a part of the, the, the process um, that Washington, D.C. goes through and our government goes through to establish a budget. And we should all sort of breathe easy a little bit because um, for at least the foreseeable budget uh, in the next year, NEA has not been defunded um, and, and actually maintains the same amount of funding. And they're still accepting grants um, for, for um, 
uh, the year 2018. But I think what What's important, and I mentioned this before, I'd like to highlight it, is that if you go to NEA, the, the, the website, .gov, you can actually go into a search engine which allows you to search through the grant applications that have been funded. And you can search by city and you can search by state. And if you do that, you're going to find that most likely there is a cultural institution. It could be a theater. It could be a dance troupe. It could be a, an arts festival um, that is going to be funded by the NEA uh, in your local community. Um, Interesting. There's, there are so many different um, small grants that are given out from the, you know, from the range of like ten dollars to $20,000 that are really impacting level, you know, city, town by town, community by community. And, and that is really where, and if you look very closely at those grants, you're going to see things like, we'll work with, say, the local high school, we'll develop an after school program. There is so much that is a part of NEA funding that attends to educational services, really to supplement um, the difficulties that schools are, public schools are having in funding the arts themselves. Um, as we all know, public, uh, public schools are under extreme pressure for, to um, highlight student performance, and there's a number of different pressures to push arts and other sort of activities such as uh, physical education to kind of the peripheral of their, their educational experiences. So NEA really it fills a gap. Um, and to me, again, my field is in art education. That's one of the reasons why I feel so passionately about the NEA. But I would also say, you know, ask your local art teacher. Um, they might have had an experience where they interface with a cultural institution, a local arts organization, uh, a local theater group that, uh, that, again, through NEA funding, was able to provide programming for students and for young people. So there really are very tangible results of, of um defunding completely an organization like the National Endowment or the National uh, Council for the Arts because they, they do impact uh, local communities and schools on almost every level. Mm. So is federal funding, is it necessary for the arts or is it something that can be done privately? Yeah. I mean, certainly I would say that um, having worked with artists and being an artist myself um, my entire life that uh, you know, creative people are scrappy and would probably find a way regardless. <laughs> um, I mean, if you want to, if you want to find entrepreneurial spirit, um, get to know an artist because they they need to work in a number of different ways to um, engage their work, uh, whether that be theater, whether it be music, whether it be the visual arts, and get their work into the public. Um, it's a it's a demanding and also a a really rewarding um, set of professions and activities. Uh, so, is federal funding absolutely necessary for the arts to thrive? I mean, no. Uh, I, I think that, 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 that it would persist no matter what. But here's what federal funding does do. One is it begins to build a kind of um, – there, there there's a lot of research out there about the association between federal funding and private funding. So in other words, when you do see federal funding, it's kind of like it gives it – a little bit of validation. Um, and I've actually seen this work. I, I used to um, work with a nonprofit in Poughkeepsie, New York, that dealt with media education. Uh, and they, they really were a, a, a small organization. They had three people in-house, essentially a director and, and two staff members. And their skill set around writing grants and really building the, the sustainable health of that organization, I think was significantly improved by beginning to craft larger more strategic grants that began with the NEA. That led to other grants that came from, say, the Dyson Organization, which is a private organization, uh, a private philanthropic organization. So you do see kind of a correlation between uh, public funding and private funding. The other thing to really um, 
remember and what makes uh, public funding possibly even more important is that charitable donations uh, might allow arts organizations in highly populated areas to survive and thrive, um, cities and suburbs. Uh, but when you get into rural communities, there's just a not there's not enough to sustain uh, cultural institutions in those rural communities. And so federal funding and state funding play a really important, vital role in terms of sustaining those organizations to serve rural populations. We would we would see that that part of the arts um, ecosystem just really collapse without public funding. And that's a real hazard. Um, and, and that's that's, again, why I think NEA um, and, and the health of federal funding for the arts is so important is because it, it, it allows us to operate in a space where, you know, the only determining factor is not just the economy. In other words, we, we can still sustain the arts that have to do with cultural preservation, that have, that have um, the opportunity to, to serve those communities that might be outside of, you know, really densely populated areas and support them in, in sort of cultural education and, and exposing them to the arts, which can really impact the, the quality of their lives and the quality of their, their, their um, civic education. You know, Aaron, I, I really agree with what you said about artists being scrappy. You know, I, I actually I do voiceovers from home and I've, I've done quite a few audiobooks. And when I was first starting out doing audiobooks, I was doing them for free just to get my foot in the door. And I just I, I every once in a while I have this thought of, you know, I ought to love this so much that I would be willing to do it for nothing. So I think that's I you know I think that's a good little nugget of knowledge for for any artist out there that if you if you can get to a point where you love it so much where you do it for free and hopefully that's not the case but then you know that you're really truly passionate about it. Uh, and yeah, it's kind of like what uh, Jeff Goldblum said in Jurassic Park that life finds a way. So maybe in this case arts will find the way. Um, that's right. That's so right. So if uh, if the NEA is defunded, what what are we looking at in the immediate future? I mean, what's what's the future of the arts if that happens? Yeah, uh, I, you know, Jeff, I think that's that's hard to forecast. I mean, I think uh, as all things uh, that have to do with federal funding, um, it's really unusual to have something where it just gets defunded and then collapses. Um, so I think you'd have a kind of um, uh, uh, an effect that would essentially draw out over a number of months, um, but I do see um, I do see the the um, reality of a of a rapid erosion of essentially first the, at the federal level, then we would see the states organizations that are that are relying on federal funding, uh, local organizations and um, arts councils would begin to collapse, and essentially what you would have is you would have a marketplace that would emerge. Um, that would that would be relying on charitable donations um, and and private funding, and you know again we want to support those partners and make sure that the you know I'm not, I'm not suggesting that that money isn't needed and also an important part of of how we fund the arts in our communities, um, but again as I said I think what you'd see is you'd see a collapse of of rural initiatives. Um, you'd see a concentration in cities in terms of how um, arts communities and arts organizations are able to thrive. I think you'd also see a, an alignment of sort of market value and the, the arts organizations. So in other words, things that deal with, say, cultural preservation or that don't necessarily have the sort of market viability, those would also probably be under extreme threat um, because I think there, there's a nature where, you know, certain arts or organizations can 
can present a product whereby they can sell it, right? I mean, theaters could could potentially thrive if they have a um, if they tap into the right kind of supporter and donor community. Um, but when you have a an organization that's say working in Appalachia who's trying to preserve um, you know um, music heritage there, that's going to be a little bit harder to do if you don't have public funding. Yeah, and Aaron, just in closing here. Uh, you mentioned earlier that that we should go onto the NEA website and just become more educated and, and be more familiar with the programs that are supported and and uh, the grant process that that's involved there. What is something else that we can do today to either take a stance or to to make it known that the arts are important to us? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I wanted to um, just mention the website again. It's www.arts.gov. I think I had mentioned that uh, incorrectly before. It's .arts.gov. Um, what I would say is call your congressman. Um, call, call the person who is your local representative uh, because they are the first line of participating in our democratic process. Uh, I... I um, have uh, been sort of calling my congressman recently, almost weekly, uh, about certain issues because I feel it's important that we begin to to vocalize what we what we feel is important. And uh, you know, our our, our congressmen are, are the first line of our entry point into uh, certainly federal funding. Uh, the secondary thing is by participating. Um, you know, look look at your community and see what's happening in your community in terms of our, the arts organizations that are working and thriving. Um, you know, the NEA does not uh, necessarily need donations, but those donations can be certainly pointed at more local levels. Um, I know we have a community theater here in town. We have an arts council that we uh, work with. There's a number of different initiatives uh, that can use not only dollars, but also, you know, support through volunteering and things of, the, of that nature. So you don't have to look far. I think the, the most important way to, to sort of leverage this argument or make your voice heard is to start local. Because that's exactly where the most impact is being had, is that um, federal funding for the arts is impacting us on a local level. And we need to reach out to our local representatives to make sure that we understand that and we feel it's valuable. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for that input. And uh, really, your time here on the Matt Townsend Show, we appreciate all that you've said here. And uh, appreciate the input that you gave us to start locally and to just seek out the local arts and, and maybe start supporting there and contacting our, our congressmen and making our voice heard. We're going to take a break. Uh, we just finished speaking with Aaron D. Knockle, who is a Ph.D. and assistant professor of art education at the Penn State College of Arts and Architecture. When we return, we'll continue the discussion and continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We just uh, finished speaking with Aaron Knockle, who was talking to us about the defunding of the arts. And right now, Terry South would like to talk to us about a a TV channel that he would probably like to defund. Absolutely. There's no reason for this. Um, So on your cable system, people are mad because... uh, they don't want to pay the high price of cable and satellites, so they're cutting the cord. Right. Part of that problem is the fact that you have, in some cases, like 500 channels. Mm-hmm. You, you watch maybe 12. 
Right. The studies come back and like the average person watches maybe 12. There's six they watch a, a, a great deal. Sure. Other ones they catch every once in a while. And that's about it. Mm-hmm. And if you roll through your, your guide, there's all these channels. You have no idea what these things are. There's shopping channels. There's just all kinds of things. My favorite channel, the knife channel. There's a there's a knife well, channel. Well, it's, it's sort of a it's on the pay on the um, <laughs> shopping. There's like certain channels where people can buy time. Okay. And then you jump in with an infomercial, <laughs> or what these guys do is they have a two to three hour show where they sell knives. Yeah. Out of it looks like a motorhome in Alabama or something, <laughs> and. It's really fun to watch because they have all kinds of knives. Well, there's this other channel, and it popped up about a year, year and a half ago. It was like a free preview on my, my system. And I, whenever oh. there's a free preview, I'm like, oh, cool. There's something yes. I can watch. So you go, and it was called Dog TV. I do remember seeing a free preview for Dog TV. Yeah. I didn't watch it, but wow. Dog TV is not for you. Okay. Not for the human, not for the person who's paying for the service. It's so <laughs> you can leave the TV on and go to work. And your dog gets this programming, which is like soothing noises or dogs at play. And so your dog can watch other dogs. And it, it's to help your dog if it has feelings of anxiety or separation from you, that it comforts them. And it also comforts the human to know that their 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 friend at home is being able to watch other dogs on TV or music. or I just. But can't TV for dogs rot dogs' brains like TV for us can I, rot our brains? I don't know. But hmm. my problem is um now it's not really a problem because i believe you have to actually pay to get it it's not something just included in your system right wow but it just shows how far their you know tv is going on like oh here's an idea let's do that and and because they're they're using fees that come out of what i'm paying for what i want to have for a cable or satellite system some of these channels exist right they get these these payments and i would rather they try to focus on something i I actually want to watch. Maybe. Sure, give me some more choice, but they don't do that. Mm, you know, maybe you'd... it's something you'd see at a veterinarian's office, possibly while you're waiting. But yeah, it's called Dog TV. If you there's a you you pay for it separately, <laughs> oh, gosh. right? So it's on top of your cable bill. But occasionally yeah. it pops up as like a free preview, and you watch it. And you're like, why does this exist? I'm going to check it out the next time I get a free preview for it. Yeah. So, yeah, and then in this article I have, they, they talk about what does it do to a, a dog's brain. It's like much like iPads with a child. Do we know what this does? I'm like, I don't think the dog – I don't know. It doesn't seem like maybe the, the dog is going to come up with some horrible habit of watching TV or something. We, they, need a, we need a commercial where they have the frying pan and the egg. This is your dog's brain on dog TV. And this doctor says the better solution would be a doggy daycare type arrangement where they're actually physically interacting with other dogs and people, not just watching it on TV. I think that's the next movie with Cuba Gooding Jr., by the way. Doggy daycare. Right. Doggy daycare. So, yeah, dog TV. Apparently it's on YouTube if you want to see what kind of programming they have. Oh, I'm totally going to check it's it out. It's soothing to the, to the dog. Hmm. Maybe it'll put my kids to sleep, too. Possibly. They might want to watch dogs just like playing <laughs> fetch. Who knows? No, I better not do that because then they'll start asking me for a dog. Right. Which is not going to happen. No. All righty. Well, thanks, Terry. Let's see if we can't uh, work on getting dog TV defunded. No, we wouldn't do that. But just make sure you don't have it on too long for your dogs because it could rot their brains. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good Wednesday morning, everyone. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm joined here with Terry South and Cole Wissinger. And uh, my name is Jeff Simpson. We're all covering for Matt while he's away sick. We wish him well. I wonder if he's celebrating stay up all night night, which is what we're celebrating today. So maybe stay up, watch, catch up on your Netflix shows, get some good midnight snacks, or just be like Terry South, go to bed at 10 o'clock. Yeah, don't ruin your next day. That's probably along the lines of what I'll be doing. I'll probably just go to bed early. Because when I was in college, I celebrated stay up all night, night, every night. So, Cole, you probably are still doing that, yes? Um, I did. I remember it also. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting to be an old man myself when it oh, comes to things like that. Okay. Uh, so, fun stuff. Stay up all night, night. And uh, also, we just want to encourage you, since we couldn't celebrate Matt Townsend's birthday properly on the show, feel free to send him a tweet. I'm sure he would appreciate it as he's lying in bed watching Netflix. Anyway, hopefully he'll be back soon. We're going to be speaking with uh, Susanna Tai, who's going to be talking to us about childhood bullying and how this may be connected to chronic disease. Interesting topic. And uh, we may also be speaking with our student producer, Caitlin Thomas, former Miss Lehigh. And uh, we only have her for a couple more months. So we got to enjoy her while she's here. Uh, but Terry, first and foremost, why don't we head over to you and you can tell us what's going on around the rest of the country. What's up? As uh, we've been going through the last few weeks, there's been a lot of airplane issues. We talked about Spirit Airlines earlier. They had some issues in Fort Lauderdale. United's been dealing with issues. Delta had some issues last week. Southwest flight, 2530. No, not Southwest. Yes, they traveled Sunday from Dallas and was on a short layover at Hollywood Burbank Airport before continuing on to Oakland. As the plane taxied to the gate, a fistfight broke out between two men. Uh, This according to the Burbank police. The altercation worsened as fellow passengers tried to get off the plane at the gate. The airline said cell phone video that surfaced. I've watched it. It's kind of entertaining. The social media shows two (laughs) men apparently jostling for position near a row of seats. Then one man forces the one over the back of another seat. And then he leans over his fallen foe and unleashes a series of punches before fellow passengers rush to stop the pummeling. One man suffered minor injuries but could not could continue on to his next destination. The other was detained and arrested for misdemeanor battery. So that's not really Southwest's problem, but again, frustration on a, on a flight. Not sure what the cause of that was, but you just have this video of people fighting. And it is like the one airline that doesn't have assigned seating. I never thought no. it would lead to a fist fight, didn't though. didn't look like it was really overly packed. Look like there were plenty of seats available, so wow. I'm not sure if that... They don't know why the fight started. Just First there was a world fight. problems. Now, United, they had some issues. As they That's where they dragged the guy in Chicago off yes. the plane. United just can't catch a break in the latest headache for the airline. Oh. A California man says a United counter agent in New Orleans threatened to cancel his reservation because he began recording his dispute with her. 
Navga Oza, 37, says he started filming the Root Agent around 4 a.m. Monday after he was charged $300 to check an oversized bag for his flight to San Francisco when he previously had been charged $125 for the same luggage. The video posted to Twitter begins with the agent calling Oza out. Uh, he does not have permission to... Re- he's, well, she looks at him and says, you don't have permission to record me. She then tells another agent to call the cops or cancel his reservations before pulling out her own phone and apparently recording him recording (laughs) her. I'll get you back, right? She goes, I'll do the same thing. An airport police officer soon arrived, told the man that he had every right to film in a public space. Uh, He he eventually booked a flight with another, another airline, later posted his video online. He goes, if people are being rude, if people are making up rules at kiosks of airlines, I feel like something we should be recording and sharing with everyone. So that's why he did it. He felt like, look, they're changing the rules right here at the desk when you're yeah. checking in. Uh, a United rep says the airline is investigating. The video does not reflect the positive customer experience we strive to offer, and for that we apologize. I'm hoping this is the type of news that will just fizzle out. Like we know last October we had all the clown news. Yes. That kind of came and went. Or uh, yeah. But uh, hopefully it happens with this too because we want to have good travel stories. Um, In completely different other news, anyone who has ordered a large popcorn just for themselves knows that gobbling delicious handfuls of salt makes you thirsty. Yes. Or does it? (gasps) New research on Russians training for space travel has turned everything we know about sodium on its head. In fact, the results appear to indicate that eating salt actually makes you not thirsty at all, but hungry. Huh? Researchers realized that when crew members ate high-sodium diets, they drank less in the long run, but their, their urine volume increased, indicating the bodies were producing water when salt intake was high. Whoa. So you'd think... You take salt, so you're going to drink more, so you're going to produce more water, or, or you or produce less. I, you know, the volume of your if you're not drinking water, your your urine should drop, but it actually went up. Yeah, right. So that's kind of what they're looking at. It says by experimenting on mice, researchers realized that the more salt they doled out, the less water the animals drank, as increased levels of of, uh, of a specific hormone work to break down fat and muscle to produce water internally. Right, so because such a process requires a lot of energy, salt led both the crew members and the mice to eat more food when on high salt diets. An editorial, editorial from the researchers in the New York Times said that people and animals get thirsty because salt detecting neurons in the mouth stimulate an urge to drink. This kind of thirst may have nothing to do with the body's actual need of water. So, is this a psychological issue then? Because I got to say, every I time I go to the movies and they have like their in-house commercials where they'll, you know, have the popping popcorn and the Coke pouring out, it works every time. Mm. I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, I don't have a Coke with this popcorn. I really, really need one and want one. Maybe you're just susceptible to advertising. But I also know that you know. Coke and Sprite, they don't really quench your thirst. No, they kind of make you thirsty. Yeah. <laughs> salt in them. Um, so that's kind of, it's just this, this idea that it's making you hungry in the long term, not necessarily thirsty, but the thirsty is just something that happens as, as you know, the reaction in your mouth to salt. So eating the salt sense. and popcorn makes you more hungry, and yeah. drinking the soda makes you more thirsty. There you go. <laughs> kind of works the other way. A person can't, and then finally, a person can't be blamed for how they react when they're surprised by a spider. Apparently, the passenger in a car driven by a 26-year-old Michigan man might beg to differ. The man veered off the road and through a ditch and heavy brush in northern Michigan Sunday morning before crashing into some trees. He told deputies that he lost control of the car after noticing a spider on the visor above his head. He escaped unscathed, but the 29-year-old female passenger suffered a wrist 
injury. So he saw a spider and freaked out. Sounds like uh, we'll have a spiders and it was on a car or in the plane. You said a car is a car. Spiders in a car. Spiders in a car. With Sam Jackson. You know, you've handed me a couple of stories here that are just kind of wacko news, mm. and I can't really make heads or tails of either one of them. So I want to get your take on this. Mm. A bizarre case prompted an Ohio sheriff's office to issue a reminder for residents to lock their doors. A 20-year-old man walked into the home of a couple, discharged a fire extinguisher, and then laid at the foot of their bed. Shortly thereafter, the man of the house and the intruder had a short time of prayer before the intruder left into the darkness. I, <laughs> this is a bizarre story. I've never felt the urge to pray with an intruder in my no, home. That wouldn't be my first action either. Uh, after leaving the house, Hunter said the man stole a golf cart from a nearby business. Deputies later pulled over the golf cart, uh, golf cart and arrested the man. The man was handcuffed and taken to the hospital for a mental evaluation. The man faces a number of charges for allegedly entering the home and stealing the golf cart. This case should serve as a reminder to lock your doors because you never know who might be wandering about and just might walk into your home. So he did, entered the home, mm-hmm. discharged a fire extinguisher. Yes. Laid at the foot of the bed of the people that own the home. Yes. Prayed with the homeowner. Mm-hmm. And then stole a golf cart. <sighs> That's a busy night. Like wow. I don't, I don't usually accomplish that much in one night. And, and this guy did it in a couple of hours. It's almost like a Mad Libs approach to burglary. You know what I mean? You're just like, oh, what are we going to do now? Just walk in that the door and funny. fix something. And then I went to the uh, foot of the bed. Yes. Yes, we'll do that. Right. And then we knelt down and had a prayer. Sounds good. Doesn't sound crazy at it's all. It's like the guy that went in and – well, the other day we had a story about a guy that uh, broke into a home and ate a pickle. Yeah. Right. He made a pimento cheese sandwich and then ate a pickle. Because he was hungry. Right. Well, you're making a sandwich. Why would you not eat a pickle? Yeah. Right? It's in the fridge. You're in the fridge. This stuff has no connection to itself. Fire extinguisher, <laughs> lay down to the foot of the bread, pray with the homeowner, take the – I mean the whole thing. I wonder that now it would have been even more weird if this intruder requested to pray with the man that whose home he broke into. Right. Interesting. Hmm. Well – I'm, hopefully they were praying that uh, this man would uh, be mentally sound. Get some help. Yes. Here's another one. A woman swallowed seven thousand U.S. dollars in a desperate attempt to hide the cash during a fight with her husband. Hmm. It was reported. The 30-year-old woman swallowed rolls of $100 bills, according to surgeons who removed the money from her body. The Colombian woman said she had saved up the money for a holiday with her husband after having sold several electrical household items. Doctors said they were able to surgically extract 57 $100 bills from the woman's stomach and intestines. The uh, picture with the story had them oh. laid out on a table in the, in the uh, mm. operating room. They're just nice and flat. And they're all laid out. It's just great. See, I, I've I've heard of people, you know, hiding things in other parts of their body, but right. swallowing mm. rolls of $100 bills. Doesn't seem and Cole, you made a good point. Like, how is she supposed to get those out? And I think the obvious answer is one that we probably don't want to talk about. Right. But this way, you know, the doctors were able to recover the money. So maybe she was able to pay for the surgery. Do you think she took that trip with her husband? No. Oh man. So you hope these have happy endings, but at least uh, she got the money away from her husband. I guess maybe she can go to a spa or something. 
Any other funny or interesting stories uh, you want to talk to us about? Article in New York Times over the weekend about – it's entitled Don't Let Facebook Make You Miserable. And it's, it says – Too that, late. Yeah. Social media is making us miserable is how it starts out. So scholars have analyzed the data and confirmed that we already knew in our hearts that social media is making us sad. Um, it, and, and they're just looking at like how, how different the real, real world is from what we see on social media. The National Enquirer, right, a weekly uh, publication <laughs> sells nearly three times as many copies as the news magazine The Atlantic, right? Mm-hmm. But – and that's like monthly every year. On Facebook, The Atlantic is 45 times more popular. Interesting. Right? So people read the National Enquirer more, but they, they on Facebook, they always click like on The Atlantic more. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, Americans spend about six times as much as their time cleaning dishes as they do golfing, but there are roughly twice as many tweets reporting golfing as there are tweets reporting dishes. Well, because we do the dishes out of obligation right. and because we want to have a clean home. But what's real? Like what's real and what's fantasy? We have this. You, 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 we've had multiple guests on where you you go on social media and you see this is the best of every person's life. Your life doesn't measure up to their best, and so you get depressed because your life is apparently not as good as theirs. <laughs> but the, the 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 trick of it all is neither is theirs, right? Yeah. This is like the high moment of every day. Yeah. This says the Las Vegas budget hotel circus circus is. And then you have the luxurious Hotel Bellagio. Each holds about the same number of people, but the Bellagio gets about three times as many check-ins on Facebook. Interesting. Because people are like, look, I'm staying here. Not, you know, not, and they're not saying that people are like staying at Circus Circus and yeah. then claiming the Bellagio. It's that people are actually talking about staying at one place and they're kind of ashamed of staying at the other. It is funny that there's this mentality that we have because what about all the people that are enjoying these vacations that aren't taking pictures and aren't posting about it and right. they're just enjoying the moment and the experience of it? Yeah, yeah. Because huh. I, mean, I, I went to a uh, basketball game, my son and I. I took a few pictures, sent them to his mom, we're done. Yeah. And we're sitting there and in front of me for the entirety of the game, <sighs> the woman in front of me was on – Instagram, on, on Facebook, on Twitter, on this, on that. She's texting. You're she never watched it. the game. <laughs> yeah. She's taking f- pictures of her family. They're all like mugging for the camera. It was like the entire game. It was two and a half hours wow. of that. I'm, lo- I'm looking and I'm like, how is this enjoyable? You're spending so much time allegedly documenting the moment that you're missing it. Yeah. You've missed the entire moment. So Yeah. Why are we somehow more interested in seeing a game through the the uh, – you know, the little four-inch screen that you have than we are just watching it live. Right. Oh, people. Oh, my goodness. It's a problem. It really is. And uh, speaking of problems, we're going to be talking about another problem with our next guest. Our next guest, the the problem of bullying and how it has uh, something to do with chronic disease. Interesting topic. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back to speak with Susanna Tie. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, many children will experience a form of bullying at some point during their childhood or adolescence. Bullying is a serious problem in schools around the country, and it can cause serious long-term problems. 
When a child or adolescent is bullied consistently, it teaches them to take a certain view of what is normal in relationships, and can be damaging to their developing self-image. Here to talk with us more about long-term problems and solutions is Dr. Susanna Tai, a director of the Translational Neuroscience Laboratory in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, Susanna, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, to be here. yeah, you know, obviously bullying has been a problem pretty much forever, right? And what, just right off the bat, you know, because I think maybe some bullies don't recognize that they are bullies because I think there's an element of teasing involved. And what is the difference between bullying someone and teasing someone? Well, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right. Bullying has been around for forever and the the ultimate difference between bullying and and teasing really gets at um, at the very core to the way the individual is perceiving and experiencing uh, that interaction um, and and also the severity of it um, and uh, so if the two people can experience the same interaction very differently and that's something that we we need to better understand um, uh, but we also need to be able to, to take a clear stance and say that if an individual is, is perceiving an experience negatively, um, then it's, we need to, A, help them um, better conceptualize that and help them respond effectively so that they feel safe. That's interesting because it seems like, you know, and I'm not saying that somebody might not be a bully based on their behavior towards someone, but, uh, you know, clearly there are people out there that are very sensitive, sensitive that might not be able to take a joke. And obviously there are differences between that and, and being bullied. But uh, is the stress that, that is caused by bullying, is it, does it cause these issues that, that you're talking about or is it just bullying in and of itself? Well, I think that's where it, you know, it, it gets challenging because it, it's not as simple as um, it's either bullying or it's not. And um, there's, there is a chicken and egg um, connotation to it. We don't know if individuals that are perceiving you know, a, a harmless joke uh, the wrong way and are very sensitive to that are then more inclined to receive uh, more and more severe forms of bullying and to be more negatively affected by it, um, or if that bullying itself is a, is a negative stressor and that's going to have an impact regardless. And so it, it's really both. And so the evidence indicates that we have to address this issue um, from both perspectives. It's a biopsychosocial problem. So individuals are going to be different in terms of their sensitivity. And so we can address that by helping them become more resilient, help them in their way of perceiving and interpreting information in the schoolyard, as well as um, intervening to ensure that you know, bullying is you know, culturally seen as unacceptable and that um, individuals that may be less sensitive to some of those social cues can better understand how they may be impacting more sensitive individuals. So talk to us about uh, our roles as parents, not only of, you know, obviously you may not know that your child is a bully, but as parents of, of children that are bullied, 
what is it specifically that we can do? What's our role versus, let's say, like what is a school's role in preventing bullying? Uh, I think it, I mean, really as parents, we can, uh, you know, start at the ground level, help, an ind- help our children at the individual level to, to cope with stress. To, I mean, I think our natural inclination as parents is to want to protect them from stress. And, and we know that tr- just trying to protect them outright so that they don't experience stress actually can have a negative impact in the long run and actually make them less resilient. Uh, so teaching them early on that there are, there are going to be challenges, um, teaching them how to interpret different uh, social interactions. So some are going to be positive, some are going to be negative. They might, might get left out of a group or out of a conversation. Um, and how to, uh, to, to look at that, to interpret that, and how to respond to that in a way that's going to um, help them cope uh, psychologically and and socially with those those things because they're part of everyday life and it's an important part of learning how to negotiate social interactions um, and then it's also teaching them how to uh, you know what to look out for in terms of what's absolutely unacceptable um, if they're being victimized if they're being routinely left out of uh, groups and ostracized or if they're being physically harmed um, then they need to know where to go for help, um, to know that it's okay to talk to parents, um, to know how to respond at school, who they could talk to uh, at their school, and, and really just to arm them psychologically and then to give them the, the skills that they'll need to, to cope with those challenges if they face them and to know that it's okay. It's not, um, you know, if they are... Uh, victimized that it's okay to to speak up they don't have to um, feel that they need to deal with that on their own yeah so it sounds like maybe it's not a question of preventing stress but more uh, learning to become resilient when those when they're in those stressful situations because it seems like stress is not something that they will be able to avoid for their entire lives absolutely not and I think as that as adults, we know that we live in a, an incredibly stressful world and um, we have to, to build up our kids to be resilient to stress. And so giving them the tools uh, that they can use as they grow and develop in an age-appropriate manner to, to face challenges, not to try to solve them for them necessarily if there are things that they can learn to handle um, and, and teach them ways that they can think through problems look at different ways that they can solve their problems and, uh, and support them in, in during those processes. And, you know, there's an emerging concept of, of stress inoculation where you know, providing children with the opportunity to face challenges, to do it in a safe environment so where they're not overwhelmed and overburdened, um, they're not in danger, but they're able to successfully navigate through those challenges and develop um, a sense of self-efficacy, a, a sense that they can themselves meet a challenge head-on and um, and find a solution to that, even if that it is going um, to an adult and, and seeking further support, uh, can actually be um, very protective in the long run. Is there so that idea? Is there a, a simulation of that that that? could be put in front of these students to help them 
uh, deal with stress? What would that look like? And there have been some programs uh, that have been trialed. I don't know of any that are, um, you know, I think they're, that are routinely um, part of the curriculum. I think schools do take these approaches uh, on in their own way. Um, but there are uh, a number of programs, for example, that can help children uh, look at their interactions, their social interactions, for example, and how they interpret um, you know, a joke, as you mentioned before, in in the playground, is uh, whether that's something that was said to them because, you know, they're a person that deserves that. They take that very personally. They feel that people are always going to make fun of them um, versus helping them reframe that uh, type of situation to, oh, that person was just trying to be funny. Uh, that person, you know, maybe is having a bad day and so they're a little bit... Um, negative in, in you know how they were speaking to me rather than taking it on personally and we can certainly um, you know, help children to to learn to interpret interpret these social interactions um, in a more positive and more uh, optimistic uh, mindset yeah so uh, talk to us now about what talk to us about chronic stress versus stressful situations so I think Stress, as we already said, is part of everyday life and what's you know, also becoming part of everyday life is chronic stress. So physically our bodies have a, a stress response system. We, we are primed to, to change the way that we are functioning physiologically. So we'll release stress hormones. We'll become more alert in a situation to cope with an acute stressor. And this helps us in that moment to uh, cope effectively uh, generally to to face that challenge head on and, and find a, a solution or a means to, to deal with that challenge. When we are faced with chronic stress, as, as many of us are now experiencing in our society, we don't have a, the opportunity to recover from that stress response. So instead of having these stress hormones released and then subside and, and we recover and, and we go back to our baseline, we're living in a state of, of chronic stress, generally speaking, and um, that can have, we know that that has long-term health implications um, for us. So when, so our body ends up accumulating um, you know, the, the damage that uh, at the cellular level, uh, at the, the emotional level, uh, in trying to cope with chronic stress and really never having a chance to to recover effectively from that, and um, you know, one of the the areas where this is, you know, can become really important in uh, is in adolescence because you know obviously adolescents are in a, a critical stage of their development, you know, as in early childhood as well, and so chronic stress we know has significant health implications in adulthood, and it, it may have longer term health implications in in early life just because of the nature of the development developing stage of that individual. Yeah. Susanna, let's do this. Let's take a break. I want to come back and and talk a little bit more about those mental and physical problems that can come in. And this idea of the allostatic load, I want to hear more about that too. Uh, We're speaking with Susanna Tai, who is the director of the Translational Neuroscience Laboratory in the Department of Psychiatry and Psychology at the Mayo Clinic. And uh, we'll continue this important topic when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. We're speaking with Susanna Tai, a PhD, who's the director of the Translational Neuroscience Laboratory in the Department of Psychiatry and uh, Psychology at Mayo Clinic. Uh, Susanna, welcome back to the program. Thank you. So uh, before the break, uh, you started talking about some of the impacts that bullying can have both physically and mentally. And I'm curious to know more about this concept of the allostatic load. What can you tell us about that? So allostatic load has um, been put forward as a concept to help us really conceptualize how stress affects the body, particularly chronic stress over time, and that there there may be a point where that load becomes too much for an individual and then they go into a state of, of overload. Um, and so it was a, a term that was coined by uh, Bruce McEwen and his colleagues um, back in the early 90s and they're really some of the, the leaders in this field for understanding how stress affects the brain and the body and how it might be implicated in in long-term risk for psychiatric disease and and other um, physiological diseases as well. So, obviously, you know, I'm a parent. Are you a parent as well? I am. I have five children. Yeah. So, you know, this is something that's near and dear to your heart, I'm sure, as well as it is to mine. How can we prevent the development of some of these long-term issues at home? Yeah, and so... I think with the the concept of uh, of something like allostatic load, it's really, I mean, it speaks to also the ability to bear that load, um, and so uh, with increasing stress, uh, that can come in in many forms, and so it can be social, it can be through bullying, um, as we've been talking about, and it can be through another a, a number of other forms, just academic stress, uh, stress from um, you know, just not physically being in an optimal shape, not getting enough sleep, not getting enough um, you know, nutrients, you know, having a poor diet, not exercising enough. So there are a number of ways that we can help our kids to really um, increase their resilience to stress at both a physical and a, and a psychological level. And um, so as we were talking, we can do that by teaching them critical skills for, for interacting socially, for how to, you know, making sure that we have good lines of communication um, so that they're, you know, they tell us, you know, over the dinner table about their day and some of the challenges that they've faced, um, you know, also keeping a, um, a, an ear out for just any, you know, any signals that might indicate they're going through stress. Um, uh, at school that we can then try to probe and, and, and talk them through if they're a little hesitant in coming to us. Um, and then also making sure that they, they have what they need at a baseline in terms of getting a good night's sleep before school, getting a good breakfast, um, making sure that they uh, have a, uh, you know, a, a good opportunities for, for social support um, and multiple lines of um, of you know, adults or um, peers at school that they can go to if they, they need to talk. 
So you mentioned warning signs. What, you know, because every once in a while, my children will say something that, you know, raises red flags for us about, you know, a certain topic or something that uh, may have, may or may not have happened to them. What would some of those warning signs be that maybe my child is being bullied or they're just so stressed out? What are those? Yeah, so you, you could obviously look out for... Um you know, social anxiety, signs of, you know, being more teary and, and, you know, hesitant about going to school if there, you know, is a sense of fear or, you know, um, you know sadness uh, in them that, that has changed. Um, you know, that's certainly something that warrants, you know, uh, discussion and, and talking through. There are also some other, what we refer to as somatic symptoms. So symptoms just physiologically that indicate that they're under stress. Um, so that can be that their their appetite is diminished, they're not sleeping as well, they're suffering from headaches or abdominal pain or fatigue, and these can be signs that physiologically they're they're stressed and they're they're in a state of that allostatic overload, or um, you know they're, they're just struggling to physiologically cope with the the stress that they're under, um, and that's you know I think offers an opportunity to, to talk about that really as, a, um, as a, a need that they have that, that need, we need to ensure is met. Um, you know, often uh, when somebody's victimised, uh, whether it's at school or you know, uh, elsewhere, um, they feel like a victim and they feel somewhat at fault and, and that can create a stigma where they don't want to talk about it. And, um, being on the lookout for that and and you know reassuring them that it's um, what they're they're certainly not at fault and there's no um, you know they have a right to be treated um, fairly and properly and and really destigmatizing um, that situation and and letting them know that they have important um, physical and and social needs that that we as parents are there to support. Um, and that we're on their side, I think, can can really provide them with a, an opportunity to feel safe and um, and speak up about uh, what they're experiencing. I, I I appreciate those ideas just because we've our oldest daughter right now is she's got a couple of weeks left of preschool and she just really does not want to go. And so we've started having some of these conversations with her. You know, is something happening? Is your teacher not being nice? Or is there another student that's not being nice? And I think she's just bored and ready to go to kindergarten. Thank goodness. But uh, yeah, these are conversations that we're starting to have with our kids. Um, I'm curious to know, I mentioned earlier in the program that um, parents might be able to see more clearly when their child is being bullied versus when their child is actually the offender. Is there anything that parents of bullies can do to help their children uh, to not bully them or to to change their ways so that they're not so they're they're not char- or, uh, causing this stress on other kids? Yeah, and, and I, again, I think it's really looking to the needs of that individual. You know, as parents, we all hope that we're not in that situation where we find out that um, our child is, you know, somehow hurting another individual. But I think it's important to know that they're they're doing 
this often as a way of coping themselves with stress that they're under. Um, and, you know, maybe they lack the tools to effectively um, engage in um, uh, more appropriate responses on the playground or in, in other situations. And so um, finding out what's really at the core of that, you know, do they feel that they, you know, why do they feel that they need to be acting in a, in a manner that's sort of dominating or um, potentially harming or um, humiliating another individual. And it, it, it's sort of a, a, an indirect way of trying to um, feel safe themselves. Uh, and so really talking them through that, what's at the core of that, and looking at other opportunities that they may have that they're really not aware of to, to feel that safety and to feel that security themselves. Um, and then also creating, um, you know, an understanding for how the individual may be feeling. So in the heat of that moment, they're really focused on how they can cope and um, have little awareness or appreciation for how the, it's affecting the other individual. Um, you know, in a sense, they may feel threatened themselves. And um, so really working through that and, again, taking the... Um, the, the blame is not going to be effective in, in that situation, destigmatizing it and looking to the needs of that person, helping them to feel safe as well can then help to neutralize that uh, social dynamic. And uh, Susanna, just in closing here, I'm curious to know what we like to do on the show is, is talk about the one thing that people can do today to uh, to help. So what is w- the one thing that we can do today to help our children uh, de-stress, if you will, so that they don't uh, get on this path of of potential mental and physical problems later on in their lives? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, I mean, today it's really having a, a conversation with your kids and, and letting them know that you're there for them no matter what. And there there is always that open line of communication and that you're there essentially to help them grow and develop and support them. Um, you know, if there are concerns that, that they may be being bullied or um, be a bully themselves, it's, you know, it's important to address that and, and really look into the needs that they may have as an individual, look at what next steps you might need to take if they are suffering um, some psychological implications or some health implications of bullying, maybe you know seeking outside help um, to help them through that uh, is is really important. And I mean, just I think the at the foundation, you know, the, my um, sort of guiding principle is that it's the health and happiness of my children comes first. And and my role as a mother is to guide them um, to be healthy, happy, sort of fully functioning you know, adults. And so with that uh, in mind, whether they get an A on a test is not you know, critical. Whether they you know, get picked for the, the sports team is, is not critical. These are moments that, that move, we move through in life. Um, you know, what's at the, the core of that is really learning to um, be happy, um, to, to cope effectively with stress and to have great, build great support networks. And, you know, I think taking our eye off the, the need to achieve and really focusing on the, the well-being of the individual um, over the long term is a, 
um, you're certainly my guiding um, principle as a parent and I think can help to reduce that stress because it's it's more about how um, you know how they're interacting with life which is an ongoing process and so we're looking at building skills not just just achieving in the moment mm, that's great advice Susanna thank you so much for your time here on the Matt Townsend show her name is Dr. Susanna Tai, and she's been speaking to us about childhood bullying and how that can lead to chronic disease later on in life we will uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be speaking with our wonderful student producer, Caitlin Thomas, who's winding down here at the Matt Townsend Show, meaning she's not going to be here for much longer. Sad, sad day. But we'll have some fun when we come back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever wondered what the rules about airport etiquette are? Airports seem to bring out the worst in people, and it can all be very chaotic. Well, Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to discuss and give us more details about what we should do and should not do while at an airport. Caitlin, hello. hello. I've been out for a while, a good little while. Yes. But I'm back. I first of all, I want to understand how it is you got bumped from a flight, and how we can do that. I've been trying my whole life to get bumped from a flight, Why? never su- because they compensate you. Well, I didn't because I was flying standby. Oh, so I was flying on buddy passes to get over. So I just wanted to go visit my niece. Okay, because um, she was born, and I hadn't met her. She lives in Arizona, and I hadn't met her. And right after graduation, I just wanted to go. Couldn't afford tickets to fly from a Friday. From fly Friday, come home Monday because sure. it was too expensive. So my friend who works for Delta got me some buddy passes. So I knew the risks that I was taking. But while I was there, so I did get bumped. And so while I was sitting in the airport, I, I had some time to people watch. And I came up with a <laughs> list of things that you should and things that you should not do when you're in an airport or when you get stuck in an airport. Okay. Should we start with the shoulds? Um, uh, Sure. I mean, let me see here. Where are my shoulds? Do speak kindly to your, like, gate attendant. Yes. Wow, people get so nasty. Yeah. And I'm like, that person has no control. It's not their fault. Yeah, exactly. You just look crazy. You just look crazy. Don't they just, scream at they the want people. somebody to vent at. And yeah, I unfortunately, know. it's always at the wrong person. To blame. And I'm like, you know yeah. what? The more you yell, the less likely they are to help you. Mm-hmm. Um, do not panic and scream and cry. Trust me, it doesn't work. Mm. I panicked a little bit, but it was okay. I kept myself under control. But another lady that also got bumped on my flight was very much out of control. And it was like, wow, this is a little... Was she also on the standby? Yeah. So, But didn't she know that there was the possibility that would happen? Yeah. Interesting. I don't know. I don't understand. Um, Do be sure to bring a book or some form of entertainment um, with you so that you're entertained if you get stuck. I did do that. That was the one thing I did do. And I was like, this is, I'm glad I did this. I'm glad I have Netflix. Was it The Bachelor? Were you watching The Bachelor? No, I was watching Criminal Minds. Oh, okay. (laughs) Which soaks up a lot of time when you're sitting in an airport for. And freaks you out, too. Yeah, a little bit. Makes you very skeptical of all the humans around you. (laughs) Um, Do not whine at the, like, other people getting on the flight. I did see this. There was a confrontation. One lady, this was a different lady. She, I don't exactly know what her issue was but she was like yelling at all the other people that were walking onto their flight and she wasn't she was just like losing her mind and i was like wait what did what did she say to them she was just upset that nobody would trade like give her their ticket or like give her 
their spot. I don't really know. Like I said, I was just people watching, so I only caught bits and pieces of what was happening. But she was losing her mind, and I was like, "Where am I? Am I still on Earth?" Yeah. This is a this is the weirdest place I've ever been. So you wonder people that that put up a big fuss like that, and like the guy in the United Airline. You wonder if they those people. Like desperately, desperately need to get home, they or if must. that's just their personality. I don't know. You know, and maybe it is their personality, and it's just bringing out the worst in them. Maybe mm. they've got some anxiety. I'm not sure, but she was losing her mind. Wow! At random strangers, and I was like, as, like security had to come and like escort her because she was getting crazy. But do be sure to pack extra clothes in your carry on. I did not do that. Oh no! And. So that wasn't fun. Was this like an overnight bump or was it just yeah, a later flight? it was an overnight bump. I ended up going back to my sister and brother-in-law's house uh-huh. because I didn't have extra clothes. I didn't have anything. And I was like, uh. And if you're on a buddy pass, they probably didn't put you up in a hotel overnight. No. Right? Yeah. So I had – anyways, they dropped me off. I waited for about two hours and then I had to call them back. They had to drive all the way back to Phoenix to get me to the airport. Oh. So pack extra clothes and then that way if you have to stay overnight, you're a little bit more prepared. Yeah. You know, like I probably could have slept there. I just didn't have any extra clothes. Sure. It was gross. Um, Do not have your headphones turned up so loudly when they're calling your flight (laughs) that you miss them calling your zone boarding number. Some guy missed his flight. He was sitting right there. I saw him because he was on um, the flight that I was supposed to get on or that I was planning on getting on. And he was sitting right there. And they were calling his name and calling his name and calling his name. All of the standby people were just waiting to see if this seat was going to get taken. Didn't get taken. Didn't get taken. And so they took the, the next standby guy who was one in front of me. So I was like, dang, I missed it by one. And he starts. They, he scanned his pass and he starts walking down the little hallway thing that connects to the airplane finally the guy stands up and goes hey so when are we boarding oh my and they're goodness. like dude we've been boarding for 45 minutes it's those noise canceling and uh oh, man. yeah oh, oh man. noise canceling headphones so maybe if you're waiting on standby you <clears throat> hand out noise canceling headphones to the people in front of you yeah. so that you can get on the flight because if one more person had that's been doing great, that you yeah, would have gotten on i would have gotten on that's a great yeah. idea i just remember sitting there like Dude, people have been boarding all around. Can't you see people walking? Like, what? I love Where your delivery you? of, of the guy too. Like, so are we going to board this plane or literally? What? He just was like, "Hey, so like, when are we boarding? Nobody's here. Are we like, going to do like this thing?" <laughs> oh my goodness, people! We just wow. need to learn some etiquette about the airport. Okay, it's it's. I get that we're all traveling and got to get places. I mean, I'm sure that. Some people are just really desperate for whatever reason, but yelling and screaming and throwing a fit is not going to get you to a place faster. Well, it's it sounds not. like it was quite the ordeal, but at least, you know, you didn't get punched in the face or no, end up with a concussion. I didn't get in fact, Delta was very good to me. They bumped me to the next day's flight and they made sure that I was the first standby to get on, and they were fantastic. So props to my treatment was fantastic, but Again, I didn't act like a complete maniac, so I also didn't get treated like one. Not that that's always the case, just yeah. saying. The ones that I saw were I'm like, I wouldn't want to deal with you either. <laughs> you bring up some great points. Like, why would you be rude to the person that controls whether or not you get on your plane? Just like when you go to a restaurant, why would you be rude to, to the, the person, person that is preparing your, your food? food. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Just think before you speak. And my last bit of advice is do not fly standby the <laughs> night before your first day of class. Ooh. Classes were on Tuesday. I had, and I'm just finishing up my capstone. So I missed my first day of class. It was rough. It's okay. My professor was cool about it. I but they never do in. anything the first day anyway. No, it's cool. And I Skyped into the class. So it was fine. But I just remember being super stressed out. Like, I am missing 
this first day it's only like a six week class. So Man, there's that. Skyping in, I wish that would have been an option when I was going to school. Here. Wise words of advice for you guys this week. You are wise, and those words of advice uh, are going to help us. You'll learn a lot from just kind of observing the people around you. Yeah. Take your headphones out. Wow. Use your common sense and take off yeah. those noise-canceling headphones. Happy Wednesday. Well, Caitlin Thomas, you've done it again. We're glad to have you back, and uh, make sure you don't miss any more classes, all right? Happy summer traveling, y'all. <laughs> we'll take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the third and final hour. And uh, we're celebrating a very special day today that actually none of us here are going to celebrate it. <laughs> I take that back. Strike that. Reverse it. Stay up all night night, which is something I celebrated religiously in college as I would stay up late watching movies and fall asleep on the couch. The good news is that 364 days of the year are go to bed early and get a good night's sleep. Thank night. goodness. You know, every once in a while I celebrate it, uh, not intentionally. There's just stuff that needs to get done that I, uh, yeah, put off till the last minute. And so I have to do it. I have to sacrifice sleep. But I'm not usually celebrating stay up all night night. Anyway... Celebrate it. Don't celebrate it. We will not be celebrating it because we love our sleep too much. And luckily, Cole doesn't have to uh, cover a baseball game again. Otherwise, he may be celebrating it tonight. Yeah, you never know with a clockless sport how long it's going to keep you around when you got to cover it. Well, can we – maybe we should have you cover like the Dodger game or some other sporting event that's going to go until midnight. Well, normally I cover teams that win – and so that would be a conflict of interest for me. Was that a jab at the Los Angeles Dodgers? It sure felt like it. One of the finest establishments. Wow. Well, that's debatable. Well, How I, much money can you possibly spend to not win a World Series? And they are routinely, they spend the most amount of money to yeah. not win. And they brag about it. Yeah. However, oh. they're on a roll. They may still be in second place, but they're doing really well. It's what, May? Yes. World Series is in October, November? Yeah. I'm just saying. It has to snow before they can have a, a championship series? The obscure Los Angeles Dodgers are, I, I've heard good things, and I think they're the team to watch this year. It will probably snow in L.A. before they get to the World Series. <gasps> Ooh. That was rude. That cuts deep. Probably really true, but. But I'm from Anaheim, California. And? There is a baseball team in Anaheim. You right. are aware of that one also. The Mighty Ducks? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just the Ducks now. Changed the color scheme, got no, rid of Disney. I root, I root for the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim after the Dodgers, though, because they're the Los Angeles Dodgers of Los Angeles. Anyway... Well, I'm not going to I'm not even going to ask you to cover that team because I it's uh, it would be an insult to mm. the Los Angeles Dodgers. Mm. I'm sorry if that sounded mean. I think it's cuz I stayed up late last night. Anyway, all that fun stuff coming up. Uh, we're going to be uh, replaying an interview that uh, Dr. Matt did with uh, Leslie Doors. 
talking about the best ways to talk to your spouse. And then, of course, we'll be finishing off the hour by speaking with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. But first, let's talk to Terry South, see what's going on around the rest of the country. A U.S. Navy ship collided with a South Korean fishing boat. This was on Tuesday. Uh, but there are no reports of any injuries. The U.S. cruiser USS Lake Champlain was engaging in training Tuesday when it collided with a 9.8-ton fishing boat off South Korea's east coast. An unidentified South Korean military official uh, says that the incident appears to be a minor collision, that no casualties have been reported. The defense ministry in South Korea has confirmed the substance of the report but gave no further details. The cause of the collision was not immediately known. Um, usually the cause of collision is two things crashing together. Yes. Going off uh, assumption there. <laughs> um, other news officials have discovered that as many as 7,000 bodies are interred in the ground beneath the University of Mississippi Medical Center on land that once was home to the state's mental institution. Uh-oh. It only recently became clear that they were there were bodies buried on campus. Some 2,000 bodies were discovered three years ago when work began on a new parking garage. But new sonar studies show many more bodies are hidden underground. The former asylum operated from 1855 to 1935, and the dead were likely deceased patients. The medical center has struggled with how to handle the remains, and it has estimated that exhuming and reburying all the bodies would cost about $21 million for the teaching hospital. Instead, the facility has suggested digging up a portion of the remains to donate to scientific research and build a memorial to the remaining patients who were denied proper burial. This is this sounds like the premise of Poltergeist and pretty much every other horror movie out there. Pet cemetery, all kinds of stuff, don't, right? Yeah. Don't build buildings on top of, you know... Cemetery. Don't do that. So now, now they're trying to deal with that issue. Uh, a Pennsylvania girl has earned an associate's degree at a community college even before she received her high school diploma. Seventeen-year-old hmm. Sandra Stallings will receive her degree in business administration from Harrisburg Area Community College on Thursday. Stallings completed sixty-three credit hours through the school's dual enrollment program and is the first high school student from the community college's Gettysburg campus to earn her degree before finishing high school. Stallings took the courses online, which gave her the time to work two jobs and also participate in high school activities. So two jobs, high school activities, high school curriculum, plus college. She was kind of busy. She received her diploma from her, she'll receive her high school diploma in June. She plans to pursue an associate's degree in nursing and become a registered nurse at the end of her education. So yeah, she's well on her way. How's there that? You what were you what, were, were you trying to do anything of that nature while you were a senior in high um, school? No, anything I was that difficult. Anything I was just trying to get in and out as quickly as possible. Yeah, I was kind of just kind of sliding by myself. <laughs> so it's like, wow, you got your degree before you got your diploma. Good yeah. job. Um, and finally, it's official. Oreos now putting out new cookies faster than we can actually ever purchase them and try them out. Yeah. Yesterday we talked about the fireworks Oreos. Yes. A Pop Rocks like candy embedded in the uh, the cream. Palakiko was supposed to get us some of those yeah, Oreos, he, by the way. He failed once again. So um, now there's a new waffle and syrup flavor. Hmm. They confirmed uh, the, this was, what, yesterday they put this out? Yeah. No, it was today. It was early today. Well, it's when I printed it. I don't know. There's no date on this. So it's recently. <laughs> uh, the, so basically, what do you think? Waffle and syrup Oreos. It's it's on the... the, the, the uh, uh, what do they call that? The blonde cookie or whatever. The, yeah, yeah. So it's not the dark, the dark okay. Oreo, but it's the other one. I would definitely try that. I, you know, I might also want to try a chicken and waffle or a chicken Whoa. and waffle Oreo. Really? How would you do like a fake chicken flavor? 
Well, you know, it's all artificial flavor, and they're not actually going to put chicken. In those your chicken nuggets have a, a a long shelf life. Really, you want nuggets in your cookie now? Why not? It's, might not even be chicken. That's okay. Really, I know they're not chicken. You like more of your your sawdust and mahogany or whatever they put in there? Look. It doesn't matter that it's not real chicken. It just matters that it's food and that it's in front of me. So the waffle is syrup-flavored foods can be really hit or miss. It can easily veer into too artificial a flavor. So we're eager to – the people here are eager to get their hands on them. The outside cookies are golden Oreos. The cream appears to have a dot of syrup in the center. Now, wait a minute. Isn't there some other cookie that has like a maple twist to it? I don't know. Hmm. I'm not up on my, my cookies. I, I know there Ore- is one. I keep track of the Oreos. That's the real my question job is: Does this mean someone has already won the contest for like creating no, 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 a new no. Oreo flavor? That, that's or, still going. They're still so going. it's still going. So they're they're, they're still... already turning them out. If someone, if I had the idea yesterday right. of having a waffle and syrup flavored Oreo, you're too late. They already stole my thunder. They're going to keep cranking out flavors while this contest goes on. There's a contest, five hundred thousand dollars. If you can give them an idea for a flavor that they want to try, so collect as many of these Oreos as you can now, and then sell them on eBay later on. I'm telling you, the the winner is going to be the person that comes up with the chicken and waffle Oreo. Okay, we'll see. I'm telling you. Another uh, food product coming to a store shelf near yes. you. It's called Pickle Ice Pops. Ugh. Pickle juice fans would secretly love to drink the stuff straight from the jar. Do anyone just drink pickle juice? Nope. It's a secret. It says it right there. Do you drink pickle juice? Maybe. I use pickle juice in stew. It's an ingredient in stew. Apparently, there's a pickle soda on the market. Oh. There's frozen pickle pops are also on the rise, and they're getting easier to find. A company out of Wisconsin called Van Holtens will be selling its push-up style pickle ice pops in uh, uh, stores starting in July, and the pops are already available on Amazon and select retailers. Funny, though, while uh, a lot of the country has recently just been hit by the pickle juice craze, it's been a thing for some time. It's a uh, in sports for hydration. To to avoid cramps, to avoid your muscles from just binding up because you're you're not drinking enough water. Pickle juice flavored Gatorade, of course. So no, just straight pickle juice. This is gross. the second time I'm going to quote Jeff Goldblum on the show from the same movie. They were so preoccupied with uh, whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. So what's it says? High, <laughs> high school sport tournaments in the South, you might spot students uh, selling Dixie cups of frozen pickle juice. Uh, the pickle-flavored snow cones are popular in the region as well. Studies on the issue are conflicting. The studies tend to be, but some indicate that drinking pickle juice may help alleviate cramps. So it's kind of one of those not tested but may work for some people kind of a thing. So I've got a confession. It's totally weird, but I think it's time that I let this cat out of the bag. So before I could fully commit to actually eating pickles, especially on a burger, I would go to In-N-Out Burger and I would ask them to <laughs> dip the lettuce in pickle juice mm. and put it on the burger. Okay. And I know it sounds weird, but I'm sure they've had even weirder requests at In-N-Out Burger or any burger establishment for that matter. But, uh, yeah. But now I'm, I'm on board with the pickles. I'm not sure about pickle pops, pickle juice. Oh, yeah. I don't think I could do that Just either. Just eat a pickle. Yeah. Oh, any other food news or? Um, I have a Wi-Fi connected salt shaker. Okay, this is, is good. Because... Is that needed? I mean, because we have this whole Internet of Things. Yeah. I have a thermostat in my home that's Wi-Fi enabled. 
I can just sit in my watching TV and go, oh, it's a little warm in here. I'll turn on the air conditioning. And you just do it on your phone and the air conditioning kicks on. You don't have to move from the couch. If it's very much money, then I probably can't do it because my daughter is always breaking our salt shakers. Uh, so I'm trying to see what the features are. Uh, what about it? It's called SMALT. S-M-A-L-T. A Bluetooth-enabled salt shaker. And for the first multi-sensory device to make dining experience fun is kind of how they're trying to sell it. Hmm. Uh, it'll stream your favorite music. Okay. That's one of the features of the salt shaker is it'll stream music and play it back for you. Okay. Uh, maybe your ambiance is really bad. Uh, Smalt can help. Make any moment more memorable with the color-changing mood light. From an anniversary dinner to a party with friends, create the ambiance that's right for your Night, your spouse and friends are already happy. You're just thinking about it because their salt shaker changes color also. Can I can I use it to sprinkle salt on my food? There's an interactive way to shake salt and bring out the flavor. Try to interact with your current salt shaker. It does nothing. Um, the smalt, the artificial centerpiece, has been around for centuries. So you, you have the centerpiece of your salt shaker. Now they're saying it's smart because it's hooked to your Wi-Fi. You can stream music. There's different colors. Um Smalt is the Norwegian word for narrow, mm. apparently. So you can tell everyone at the dinner party and you don't need to leave your books out on the coffee table. I don't know. So <laughs> I, I don't know. It, it seems like we're we're in this situation where we're trying to figure out how we could possibly hook everything up to Wi-Fi. Right. Because there's toasters and they'll send you a notification when the toast is done, except – Maybe the toast pops up. That's a pretty good notification that the toast is done, right? Just stand there for 30 yeah, seconds. or your oven, or there's washers and dryers now that will send you a text message. Uh, don't they have a buzzer on the they dryer? They have a buzzer. Okay. You just come down in a while. And it's, I don't know. It, it, when it, does the floor stop shaking? That's when you know that that's done. <laughs> <laughs> I've had that. Uh, there's just so many different things they're trying to do with it. Now, it's good because the innovation of people making up a bunch of ideas and kind of spitballing things – Eventually, someone's going to trip onto something interesting. They haven't yet, though. That I, I'm a big believer of that principle. Just throw as much stuff out there as you can; something will stick. But just like you said. All the, I mean, now we have a salt shaker that'll play music. I'm like, well, if I want music, there's other ways to play music, and you can't tell me a speaker on a salt shaker is going to be of any quality that you want to listen to that music. Now, uh, does it only play salt and pepper? No, it's uh, there's some streaming services that are all connected, so you can pick what you want. Can you watch the movie Salt with Angelina Jolie on? There's no screen attached. Okay. Can you hear songs by Veruca Salt from the movie Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory? Possibly. Hmm. I concur I with the audience, by the way. I don't know if I'm on board with this. I think uh, I think you know you need to take this story with a grain of salt. There you go. You just sort of summed up the entire discussion. We we probably don't want to give anybody any ideas out there because everybody's making weapons out of everything these days. And so, you know, they might use this to assault somebody. That was a long wind-up. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a strike. Long wind-up, but it was a strike. Uh, I didn't balk on that one. Mm, I don't know if it was a strike. Interesting. But yeah, slow down on the Wi-Fi. Not everything needs to be connected to my home system. Settle down. <laughs> Just go buy a salt shaker at Walmart for a dollar. I, I take that back. I don't know if I want to encourage people to go to any specific store since uh, they're not a sponsor on the show. Oh, 
But my my biggest concern is whether or not I can get salt out of it because we've had several salt shakers broken by my beautiful, talented daughter. She's very good at breaking salt shakers. It's a talent of hers. Anyway, we'll take a break. When we come back, uh, we'll be replaying the interview that uh, Dr. Matt had with Leslie Doors about the best ways to talk to your spouse. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. To the Matt Townsend Show. You know, have you ever tried to get out of a sticky situation by saying what you think another person wants to hear, only to have your words come out as sarcastic or condescending, uh, and then you just end up digging yourself deeper into a hole? On the other hand, have you ever given someone critiques or criticism or feedback using positive tones and had them actually accept it openly or optimistically? Well, you know. It might be time that we learn how to talk, and especially in our marriages, our, our most important relationships, we probably need to figure out how tone and, uh, and just our pitch maybe sometimes impacts how our words are being picked up and how they're being related. Who better to teach us uh, than um, our great guest, Leslie uh, Maury, uh, Dories, sorry, and she is the author of the book Blueprint for Lasting Marriage. How to Create Your Happily Ever After with More Intention and Less Work. She's here to walk us through some of the details of our uh, communication with our spouse. Leslie, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Well, thank you for having me. Great to, great to have you on this topic as well. I love communication and relationship topics. So it, it, in, in the end, it's something I don't think we pay attention to, uh, the tone of how we say something, the pitch we use. It may play a lot uh, more important role than most of us understand. Well, yeah, research actually shows that. The words we, the actual words we use usually is no more than 10 or 15 percent of what gets communicated. The other 85 to 90 percent is our tone, our body language, our facial expressions. And, you know, it really creates a sense of meaning. So if somebody says, well, how are you doing? And you go, hey, I'm fine. That's one thing. And if you, but if you hear, well, how's it going? Or how are you? Fine. Fine. The word is exactly the same, but the meaning is completely different. Right. And we know, I mean, the, the tone is there for the exact purpose of creating better communication, right? It's there to convey the message almost in a deeper way. Yes, and I don't think people realize right. that. Yeah. And you know, and a lot of times if they realize that, they might want to stop and think, is the does the tone match the message that I'm trying to say, which sometimes it does, but then the next question people have to ask which they don't is is this going to get me what I want? Right. <laughs> which is an entirely different thing. Yeah, is is it just the tone is harder to manage? Is it why is it we don't pay as much attention to it as what, what we're saying? I mean, a lot of us don't even pay attention to what we say, right? But it seems like even the tone is even a – that's even a whole other game. 
Well, it is, and it's actually a much more natural game. I mean, actors spend years practicing their craft to make sure that their facial expression, their tone, their words match. Most of us don't ever go through acting classes or anything. And so what we actually really feel is right there, at, you know, is, is really accessible, and then that's what comes out despite what the actual words we use hmm. are. And we've had that. We've asked somebody, is something wrong? And they're like, no, I'm fine. Right. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, okay, something's not, it, and, and it, it conveys it, right? It, it's so we should really probably trust the tone more than the words. Absolutely. Ooh, that's scary. Time. It's, a, it's actually best when they match, but it's sort of like the idea of, um, it's the truth is what somebody's actions are. You know, pay attention more to their actions than their words. Mm-hmm. And the same thing is true with tone. Pay more attention to the tone than the actual words they're using. Yeah, you'd have to be a really skilled person to get the tone right in a lie or, a, you know, but it's the words. Okay, I'll give you the words. Is is this something we can fix and change? And, and if so, what? how do we know? How do we know how to handle the tone and what makes the best tone for whatever type of communication? Well, the the simple answer is yes, we can fix this. But it's not an easy thing to do because what happens a lot of times is we don't think we are speaking in a tone or better yet, we aren't intending to speak in that tone, but somebody else perceives it that way. And then we get into an argument of, well, you, you, know, you have a tone. No, yeah. I don't. Yes, don't use that no, tone I, with me. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Right. And, it's really, and it's really interesting. Any parent of a teenager has run into this because there's something that happens to the, to the brain when people enter puberty. It gets rewired, and a lot of the pathways that we don't need are actually kind of, they actually go away. But so the, the brain of a teenager is very, very volatile. And so they will hear a disappointed tone mm-hmm. as yelling. I can't tell you, I mean, I've talked to my sisters, my friends, everybody who's had a teenager, I experienced it where you know, you'll be unhappy with something uh, your child did, and they'll say, stop yelling at me. <laughs> but my volume hasn't raised, but that's how they hear it. Yeah. And so, we, so getting into an argument, I'm not yelling, is not productive. It's, oh, okay, this is actually what they're hearing. Is there a way for me to step back and think about a different way of saying what I want to say in a way that the person I'm talking to can hear and accept. Well, and and that uh, teen teenagers aside, men, I do, I feel that a lot. So if my wife asks me a question like, um, "So when are you going to mow the lawn?" Um, I might hear that's just a question. It might even be with a beautiful tone, but it's in my head. I think, "Oh my word, are you going to keep nagging me about this?" And all of a sudden, I'm interpreting it as a nag when it's a question, and and yet. So it might just be we we almost set it up in a competitive nature, don't we? Well, yes. Sometimes we're pre-programmed either because of the interaction, past interactions we've had with this particular person or past interactions we've had with somebody completely different. Yeah. But they use the same words and we hear 
a different meaning than what the person standing right in front of us is trying to convey. Yeah, that's huge. Okay, so we've got to work on this. How do we um, let, – let's do this, actually. Let's take a break and come back, and then I want you to, de- to describe how we adjust our tone, how we – what are some little tricks we can do to, to make sure that the tone is, is the right tone and, um, and, and maybe get some of those messages to slip through without the traditional problems. We'll take a break, uh, folks, and continue this discussion about your marriage communication on the tough issues. Leslie Dorries will be joining us and uh, rejoining us and talking to us about that and some of her secrets from her book, Blueprint for a Lasting Marriage. Stick with us, folks, uh, learning all we can to make marriage better. We'll be right back. Friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. If you ever feel like uh, you're losing your message, it's maybe lost in translation as you're communicating with somebody you love. Um, it might be your tone, folks. It might be the pitch you're using. Sometimes it might just be the pauses you're taking. So joining us is Leslie Dorries, uh, who is a family counselor, marriage therapist as well, also author of the book Blueprint for a Lasting Marriage, How to Create Your Happily Ever After with More Intention, and less work. And she's here to talk to us about um, our tone. And she's been filling us in already all about it. Leslie, welcome back. Thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. What do you think? So what are the what are the tones we need to watch out for? Oh, um, frustration, aggravation, anger, yeah. <laughs> sarcasm, and, you know, anything that really that when you're spoken to in a certain way, you don't like it, we really need to be aware that most other people probably don't either. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and sometimes if if you're already being, you know, emotionally hijacked, I call it, then you'll just take a lot of times that emotion right into the your question or your statement, and that ends up creating the tone. Absolutely. And that's really where we all need to do the work. Um, Interestingly enough, we will be aware of how we speak to complete strangers in a way that we aren't always aware of how we speak to our life partner. Mm. And usually the life part, the way we talk to our life partner comes out on the short end of the stick. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. And I guess what is that is we, we know we have different rules. We're more careful of allowing too much emotion into a an outsider relationship? Yes. And even a lot of times when we talk to our kids, there was, I'm going to date myself here, there was a, back in the 1980s, there was a huge public service campaign about how we speak to our children. Um, the words that we use, the message we convey, you know, it's not you're stupid or you're bad. It's I don't like what you just did. Right. <laughs> yeah. And I'm thinking we need a public service announcement for how to talk to our spouses and mm-hmm. those who we claim to love because there is a certain level of we let our we let ourselves we, we it's not even letting our guard down but we let ourselves become more relaxed but we but then we lose what the impact is on the person that we care about. Hmm. 
Yeah. And I mean, I guess even being less relaxed about it, just like kind of taking it more seriously, that is a really strong statement about how much you care. You care so much you're going to focus on it. Right. I'm going to care enough that I'm going to get myself under control before I open my mouth because it's what you've said. When we're flooded with emotion, our rational thought goes right out the window. Right, exactly. (laughs) So we have to take that moment and go, okay, let's bring my rational thought back in and decide how do I want to proceed with this. Mm. What, what, it's what, a step that we don't take all the time. Right. What, what are some tones we, we could be practicing that we could be improving, and how do we, how do we get that tone right? Um, well, one, it's really thinking about what do I want to accomplish by the statement I'm about to make. If I'm, now, if I'm trying to hurt or anger the other person, great you know, let it fly. Mm. But if what I really want to do is to convey my hurt or convey what matters to me, then I have to look at the way that message is being presented. It's basically what advertising does. They go after who their target market is, and then they put their message around that. Yeah. So it's really knowing your audience. I mean, and knowing your message and then, um, I guess, getting yourself aligned to that. Are there any tricks that help me? Let's say I want to create – like let's say I have to go talk to my spouse or give some feedback or some criticism or you know critique of something. How do I do that in a way that the tone comes out right? One, you have to figure out what your goal is. Is your goal really to help the other person or is – you know that – hey, you know, I've noticed that, you know, when you're interacting with the kids, you know, here's, here's something that I see, you know, that maybe isn't working really well, you know, but you have to idea, is this really about helping them or is it I just disagree with what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And I yeah, want yeah. You to do it differently. Because one is really, it's about your intention. What am I trying to accomplish? And then the other thing that we don't do which is absolutely critical, especially if we're going to make any kind of critique or correction, is to first off ask if now's a good time to talk to the person, because they may Mm -hmm. be busy and their thoughts may be elsewhere. And number two, asking, are you interested in an observation that I have about this? Yeah, because they might say, no, I'm not. (laughs) Next. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Because it sets, you know, because one, a lot of times we start a conversation and the other person's, their their head is somewhere completely different. They're not knowing it's coming. And especially if it's a criticism or a critique, it's, whoa, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm not ready for this. And good coaches know that if I preface something with a positive statement and then I bring in the correction, number one, I've set a much better tone. So it's like, yeah, that last play, you did this really well. Next time, let's try, let's try adding this to it. Yeah, there you go. And, and well, really, I'm open to that. And what's interesting, because we always hear that as a technique, right? Like kind of uh, sandwich the, the criticism. But what you're, what it, you, you made a great point saying, no, the positive side isn't to manipulate and then lower the boom. The positive thing you're saying is to set the tone that I'm in. I love you. I care. And let's just add this next time. 
right. Yeah, that's and, great. You know, and, and of course, that whatever positive comment you make has to be true because right. otherwise then the other person's go, okay, yeah, here comes the manipulation. You know? Yeah, it's just a technique, isn't it? Um, we've only got about a minute left, uh, Leslie. What would you say is the one thing, the one thing that we should all remember when it comes to managing tone? Really, it's what is your intention with what you're about to say, and does your tone match that intention? Great. Because what, what is the intention would set how this is going to come out anyway, and, and, or you might just be having tone that doesn't jive or match with what your goal was. Exactly. Hmm. Great questions. What is my intention and does it match with how it came out? Well, Leslie, we appreciate you and your great work there. Um, if you go, you have a great website, leslieduarez.com, which is D-O-A-L-E-S-L-I-D-O-A-R-E-S.com. Wonderful resources and tools there. Uh, I highly suggest all of us. We need to get working on these subtle little differences of tone, of relationship, of communication. You're going to learn them one way or another, and you're going to have problems one way or another. So, Leslie, thank you so much, and uh, keep up the great work. We will take a break, my friends, and go talk to our good buddies down at BYU Sports Nation. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. But first, let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, I am so excited because it's one of my favorite parts of the program where we get to speak with Spencer and Jerem at BYU Sports Nation. How are you guys doing? What's I just, up? I just want to know how we can make it not one of your favorite parts of the program. Ooh. Well, we'll see how this segment goes. And then... <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, did you know it's stay up all night night? I will not okay. be participating in that. You know, nobody here is celebrating it either. Our sleep is just too valuable. Well, you guys start bright and early, right? You're on from 7 to 10 a.m. Mountain Time. You're probably in the shop at 5 or 6 in the morning, right? Really early? Thank you for the reminder. Yeah. What time did you get up today? <laughs> I got up at 5.30. 5.30? Yeah. Were you... what? You so you rolled in at six fifty nine, then you're on the air at seven. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Shh, don't. Tell I know anyone. you guys work super hard. That's very early, so I don't recommend doing that. Yeah, I did it. You know, I celebrated that day uh, in college pretty much every night. So I'm done. Hey, uh, I have some sporting news for you. Ooh, sporting news. Yes, <laughs> actually, it's the only reason it's uh, connected with sports is because it, it involves an object that you would use in a sporting event as a uh, as a weapon. So, um, a skate. A Mo- <laughs> no, a Missoula man who allegedly attacked his neighbor with a bowling pin has been charged with a felony. Mm. Have you ever heard of anybody attacking somebody with a bowling pin? I've heard of lots of different things being used as weapons, and so I can honestly say that a bowling pin, if it were handy and needed to use in that uh, situation, yeah, not a surprise. Not a surprise. I can only think of one instance where a bowling pin has been used as a weapon, and uh, it was in the movie There Will Be Blood. I have not seen said movie. I have a milkshake. You have a milkshake. <laughs> I drink your milkshake. Really? That's compelling. See, you know, you know what I'm talking about, at least. Yes. I yes. drink it up. <laughs> Nothing? No? <laughs> <laughs> that was pretty impressive. Well, now you're going to have to go watch it. Okay. 
Uh, anyway, you, you've given me plenty of reason now. <laughs> I have a milkshake. Drink it up. <laughs> <laughs> Compelling and rich. Oh goodness! Oh my goodness! Today, yes. oh, it's yes. Wednesday, so I know for a fact you guys last night went to go see Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. What do you think? Yeah, we went. We loved it. Well, I loved it. What did you think? I thought it was highly entertaining. Ah, oh, it was so funny. Uh, Baby Groot, annoying or adorable? Adorable. Yeah, more adorable. I thought. People I actually, thought he was annoying. No, I'm just at I, the, your words, not mine. Oh, I am Groot. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I did love that very first scene of the movie when he's kind of dancing during the action because uh-huh. it was a nice change of pace because it 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 was a lot more interesting than just watching them fight that big monster. Yeah. No, it's just funny how. He just don't, he just doesn't have a care in the world. <laughs> He's a baby Groot, man. <laughs> I am Groot. Now, would you have paid full price to see it? Yeah, absolutely. I would have paid ten bucks or whatever the full price movie ticket is these days to see that. But it makes it all the better that I got it on Discount Tuesday. Oh yeah, and you got to see Baby Groot dance it up. Um, so. What is coming up on your show in just uh, eight minutes and – no, nine minutes and seven seconds? Loaded. Yes, that is the word for it. Where should we start? How about the fact that I'm here back to work after a five-hour marathon of a baseball game last night between BYU and Utah? Trent Prant, the assistant coach, will join us from the Batcats to discuss what in the world happened in those 13 innings of rivalry baseball and what's next for the Batcats, who are first place in the West Coast Conference, plus – BYU basketball, again, Dave Rose, the head coach, a balancing act with that basketball roster. What has the latest addition done to challenge his coaching, I guess? Acumen. uh, Yeah, yeah, acumen, good word. Marcus Eversall, who is a sports talk radio host in Green Bay, gives us an update on Taysom Hill and Jamal Williams as well. Mm -hmm. Plus, the uh, top ten things we deemed – that seemed shorter than the five-hour BYU baseball game coming up. They, a la David Letterman, top ten style. So you guys celebrated stay up all night night last Spencer night. Did. Yeah, yeah, Spencer did. Yeah. And Cole was right here with you. Cole Wissinger was running the board. Oh, Cole was there. He's a yeah. board runner. Yeah. Wow. Cole, how are you feeling? He's a board maze runner. Well, I was I was trying to get a quick nap in while you two were talking, but thanks for dragging me into it. Wait, hold on. <laughs> Wait, hold on. He, well, you can nap from 10 to 11. You're was good. that a jab? I think that was a jab. Hey, whatever. Yeah. He's surly because of the game last night. Well, I get it. Wait, why are you scheduled to work the game and the Matt Townsend show? That that's pretty. Those we can blame hours. we can blame Matt for that. Well, yeah, of course, wow. Matt, and he's not here to take responsibility. Matt, typical Matt. Some doctor. Yeah, dirty doctor. <laughs> no, he's uh, he's incapacitated at the moment. That is, I'm sad to hear that. Used to yeah, it. yeah. It's, Hopefully, he feels better. Yeah, again, I, not validating his doctor status. <laughs> the doctor's always sick. How come if if the doctor gets sick, how come he's a doctor? <laughs> Well, in the words of Stephanie Tanner, no, yes, Stephanie Tanner, how rude. Yes. How rude. Nice pull. Nice pull. (laughs) All right, you guys. Well, we're going to give you a little bit of extra time today to go prepare for the show. So uh, go knock them dead and and hopefully no more five-hour baseball games to cover in the near future. Yeah. Yeah, let's hope. Football (laughs) game days are much longer. Especially if it doesn't end in a BYU win. Oh. Oh, spoiler. 
for those who didn't see it and who make you probably won't go back and watch it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, have like, a- I haven't watched it yet. Maybe <laughs> Uh, have a good uh, have a good show, and uh, I'll drink your milkshake. Yes, drink it up. <laughs> yes, <laughs> we'll talk to you guys later. Oh goodness! Now I kind of want a milkshake. Mmm, chocolate, chocolate banana. Ooh, now we're talking. Anyway, we've got one more uh, interesting story that we want to share with you, and. Uh, it's uh, probably – Cole, you could probably relate to this because you just finished some final exams. But uh, police say two University of Kentucky students crawled through an air duct to steal a statistics exam from their professor's office but were caught because he was working late. The, speaking of staying up late – Sounds like he was celebrating it. The Lexington Herald leader reported that university police cited Henry Lynch II and Troy Kippeth, both 21, on third-degree burglary charges and referred the case to the Fayette County Circuit Court. University spokesman Jay Blanton told the newspaper that the instructor left his office about midnight Tuesday to get something to eat. When he returned, two men ran from the office. One of them later returned and confessed... Police said Lynch told officers he tried stealing the exam earlier in the night but couldn't find it. He also confessed to stealing an exam from the office earlier in the semester. You know what's interesting about this? uh, They confessed that they were trying to steal the exam, but in that confession and the attempt to steal the exam, they were also confessing that they didn't prepare for the exam, I guess. But uh, interesting. Have you any? Have you ever heard of anything like this happening at BYU? Never. Have you ever been tempted to steal an exam? No, I don't think so. I'm pretty satisfied with my preparation when it comes to that point. You know, if if I've gotten to that juncture in the semester and need to do some stealing, I probably deserve to go through the class again. See, but that's you. You were you're man enough to admit that. But uh, wow! But the if I was l- going to steal an exam, I would at least be successful, right? Like these are. T- <laughs> <laughs> wow, we're I learning all it, sorts of I things. I can say about it because you. I haven't, and I won't. Okay, but if I were, so these guys should have consulted you before trying to pull off this heist, crawling through air ducts, and, and I think it's appropriate that National Stay Up All Night Day is right after Teacher Appreciation Day and during Teacher <laughs> Appreciation Week because teachers stay up all night. Quite often, and especially around finals week. Yesterday, we took our hats off to the kids that are trying to get through it, and we should take our hats off to the teachers after finals that do have to do all the grading. And right, and tomorrow we'll be work. celebrating stay up late to uh, to steal tests from the teachers that we should be appreciating night. They all come together. Nice cohesive that title's bundle. a little too long, though. we got to do something about that. Interesting. The lengths... That students will go to to not have to study for an exam. Well, it didn't work. That's when the smarts really come out. It never works, though, because really the only remedy for getting or the only the only thing that will help you get a good grade on the test is showing up to class and studying the material. And school emulates real life. Crime doesn't pay in the real world. And. Stealing tests doesn't get you any learning in the in the school world either. But that's not to say we don't appreciate the effort because it gives us content here on the Matt Something Townsend to laugh Show. About. Thank you for contributing. 
As you know, we like to end each show with our hero story of the day, and uh, this is a really, really amazing one. Two women are being called heroes after stopping a runaway bus during rush hour in Salt Lake City. Kathy Fellows and Rachel Staley said the bus shut off, so the driver pulled over to check it out. The Transit Authority spokesman said they believe the bus's engine overheated, and buses are designed to shut down so the engines don't seize up. The operator did what she was supposed to. The battery had to be reset to get it started again, the spokesperson said. As Fellows and Staley watched the driver work on the engine, the battery was reset and they saw the door shut and the bus started rolling. Scary. As soon as the doors closed, Rachel and I looked at each other and said, Oh, this isn't good, Fellows said. Both ladies said they believe the runaway bus was going about 10 to 15 miles per hour through traffic, and with no one at the wheel, the two made a split decision. Rachel was on the left, so she jumped in the driver's seat, Fellows said. While Staley tried to make, find the brake pedal, Fellows attempted to open the door for the driver who was outside of the bus pounding on the windows to get in. Staley found the brake pedal and stepped on it, causing multiple passengers in the bus to fly forward on the ground and against their chairs. Some walked away with a few bruises and uh, strained muscles, but there were no major injuries. Whew! Man, they are heroes. That was an exciting bus ride. Hopefully one that they uh, that they don't have to repeat anytime soon. Well, uh... Kathy Fellows and Rachel Staley, you are our heroes of the day. And that's going to do it for the show today, folks. Thanks for listening. You can uh, look us up on iTunes and Stitcher. You can stream us live on byuradio.org or listen to us on Sirius XM 143. We're everywhere, folks. We'll be back again tomorrow to give you more ideas, more solutions to help you live more informed and more healthy and happy lives. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Matt Townsend Show.